is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Your friends will die, and everything you've hoped for will be lost. This is the way the story ends. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-pilot, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Excited to move into another TV series. We had that brief refresher with the film and kind of a, a reminder of what kind of show we are, and now we're we're diving headlong back into a show. Yeah, but honestly, I I, I kind of missed the, the TV show format last week, so... I'm glad to be back, even if it's just for another four yeah. more seasons. Well, that is until uh, The Clone Wars comes back. And Resistance. But, <laughs> moving on. And whatever this $10 million an episode live action series oh, will be. Dear. Yes. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I have no idea what we're doing with that. Just don't think about it. Um, yeah, so this uh, we are currently uh, going through the Star Wars saga, and we are f- officially finished with the prequel era. Wow, that was a that was that was a crazy uh, time of exploring that. Now we are moving into the original trilogy time period with Rebels, which is which is, which is another animated TV show from the same basically the entire uh, entirely the same production company or production team behind the Clone Wars. Uh, but before we go into that, I want to ask you guys to if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook. So, James, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Rebels uh, and how it came to the screen? All right. So um, it's actually the very first project uh, in the Disney era of Star Wars. Um, Shortly after they announced the cancellation of actually, I I think it was actually in the same announcement, uh, the cancellation of the Clone Wars. They announced the new series, though I don't think it was given a name at the time. Um, and so actually there's a lot of cool quotes I found from a lot of the team from it to kind of give you an idea of, of what they were really going for. Uh, and this quote is from Simon Kinberg. He said, they wanted to do an animated show and I loved Cartoon Network's Clone Wars and grew up with a lot of animated shows. So we just started to talk about where it would fall in the general Star Wars timeline. Really, there was no predetermination going in. It could have been a prequel, sequel, a standalone universe. Uh, and that actually surprised me because I feel like myself and a lot of people went into it with the idea of Disney was really wanting to distance themselves from everything prequel. Um, and that must have been why they decided to, to go into the original trilogy. Um, and maybe there was some stuff like that that he didn't talk about. But from the sound of, of what he's saying there, you know, they they kind of had a blank slate on, in terms of where they could. Uh, I, I, well, I think. Well, Disney obviously did want to distance themselves from prequel stuff. You, you can see that's pretty obvious in The Force Awakens. However, I think the creative team themselves, uh, they seemed very intent on trying to create something that was that was a distinct uh, show from The Clone Wars. They didn't want to make this just, another, just the next chapter of The Clone Wars. They were very intentionally going to try and create something new. So that, that probably explains why they this, this show... I mean, in later seasons, they do... Well, even in the first, yeah, at the end of the first season, but in later seasons they do go back and try to connect it more with the Clone Wars. But for season one, it's very much entrenched in the uh, original tri- original trilogy time yeah. period. Uh, and so the series is created by Dave Filoni, Simon Kinberg of primarily X Men fame, right? Yeah, that was always felt a little weird to me that he was part of this. But actually, when I was reading out for this, 
he was like very heavily involved in all the Star Wars stuff right around the, the acquisition. Um, he he has a he has story credits on or special thanks credits on the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi. He was also the writer for I believe what I believe would have been Josh Trank's Boba Fett movie. I think he mm-hmm. was the credited writer for that. I uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that now. That James Mangold is announced as the writer. So and he also had did some writing on um, Rogue One. So he was part of the core story group for uh, Disney Disney Lucasfilm around the acquisition, yeah. which it's just really odd because he he was still you know neck deep in uh, X Men at the time. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, and then lastly, Carrie Beck, who is the vice president of animation at Lucasfilm, uh, and it was actually Beck who suggested the series be about kind of an A team. Or her quote was. Uh, an A-team group that went around righting wrongs. Um, And Dave Filoni was receptive to the idea because if you remember our original concept for the Clone Wars, his original concept for that was much different than the show. Um, It uh, it ended up being, and and his quote, he he stated, uh, my rough idea was to deal with a small number of characters. It'd be a, a Jedi master and Padawan, a smuggler and his girlfriend, and a Gungan strongman called Lunger or Lunker, uh, have them based on a Millennium Falcon-style smuggling ship and involve them in black market trade, war, espionage, and other stories that existed outside the giant galactic conflict going on in the background. So, in other words, Dave Filoni's a big Firefly fan. Pretty much. Because, yeah, it's it's funny. I've been re-listening to different podcast reviews of the, the Rebels episodes as I watch them, and it's, it's just really funny how often the comparison comes up just in, in terms of the general premise. Especially, especially in season one. You know, they're the losers of the last war who are kind of keeping – they're not joining any cause, but they're staying at the outskirts just pecking away at the New Order. Yeah. It's uh, – it's, I think it's pretty fun. And – um. Kinberg, one of the things that he uh, really liked about setting it here uh, is he noted how the original trilogy mentions events like the dissolution of the Imperial Senate without actually depicting them. And so one of the things they wanted to do with this was similar to Clone Wars where it was able to elaborate on this war that happens almost entirely off screen. They wanted to really flesh out these um, this era of time before the original trilogy. You know, Because when it came out at first... We we knew very little about everything prior to the OT, and even though the prequels, you know, filled in a lot of the character stuff with Anakin, there's still OT being original trilogy. Yeah, sorry, I'm just <laughs> so entrenched in like Facebook discussions where abbreviation is key. Um, and you know, we see the creation of the Empire in the prequel trilogy, and then we see the destruction of the Empire in the original trilogy. And so, what they want to do is kind of show the the rise of the empire not the rise of the empire but kind of the empire at its heights um and so that was a lot of the ideas kind of surrounding it was it's very much you know new ideas that some of the new talent was bringing on meshed with some of the stuff that the uh, the team kind of already had in the back of their minds um a couple of things i wanted to mention is that the, actually before this the uh, tv series was released in uh october 2013 they released a book called a new dawn in september of 2014 uh and this was uh, set five years before Rebels took place, uh, Rebels being set five years before A New Hope. And it, it uh, covered basically how Kanan and Hera met and all that. Um, so uh, if you want kind of some backstory to the show, I think this is a good place to start. It's a very, I've read it. It's a very uh, enjoyable little book. 
uh, gives you a, a lot of uh, backstory and a, a lot more depth into Kane, especially and also a bit, a bit more on Hera just as a character and how how they came to be where they are um, at the time of the show. And another book that has a good bit of tie-ins to the to the show is Ahsoka. This one was published in 2016. It's set one year after Avengers of the Sith and shows how Ahsoka became linked with Bail Organa and became Fulcrum. Yeah, as I mentioned before, much of the uh, crew from the Clone Wars was carried up over into Rebels. That would include art director Killian Plunkett. He's he's been in, like he's a big part of it in all of these special features. Uh, CG supervisor Joel Aaron and uh, episode episodic director Stuart Lee, who directed over twenty episodes for the Clone Wars, came over and he directs a lot of the episodes here as well. Uh, Henry Gilroy too, who was one of the main story guys for the Clone Wars, and he left I think after season three. He came back and was again one of the big one of the uh, main writers for this show. One of the, one of the things they wanted to do was make this show very visually distinct uh, from the Clone Wars, and so the visual style they chose was pretty much a 3D animated version of Ralph McQuarrie's concept art for uh, A New Hope and in the original trilogy. And what's kind of funny is that this looks more like Ralph McQuarrie's stuff than anything in the original trilogy. They were really going for it, especially the color scheme, which is it's, it's I don't know how to describe it. It's like a very striking yet subdued use of color. Like the kind of the color just kind of fills in everything, but it's and it, but the uh, the compositions are kind of defined by the color in them, and it, and but it's also kind of there's, the colors are kind of soft. There's not there's not a lot of bright uh, or really uh, sharp use of color, but it's still very much defining the image. I don't know, I'm, I'm rambling. I don't know much about art, but that's just how it appears to me. Yeah, no, I, I, it really does feel like the uh, just the overall aesthetic looks like a, a moving painting, especially the clouds. I love the watercolor clouds. I do too. And, and even the, the textures of some of the environments, sometimes it looks like they're, they're kind of mimicking brush strokes um, here and there. And it's pretty cool. A lot of use of empty space, like negative space. You were just kind of something about Ralph McQuarrie's artwork just looked very big. You would have like the, the focus would be the small corner with just a lot of like a plane or mountains or just something just, a lot of space and they, they, they there's a lot of that in the compositions here in the show as well also a couple other things they borrowed from Macquarie's work was a uh, Zeb and Chopper uh, they were based on early designs for Chewbacca and R2-D2 the capital city of Lothal and uh, the the grasslands and the co- the conical rock mounds on Lothal those were all based on designs for Alderaan so yeah it's really cool I just I talked about this back in our A New Hope episode but just Google Ralph McQuarrie's artwork and just go through it. It's, it's just it's so cool seeing you know, what he wrote and how that was translated to the films, but also how beautifully it was translated into this show. And just and there, every one of those pieces of concept art is like a work of art in itself. You, you could you know frame it and hang on your wall. They're, they're really striking imagery. What's funny is uh, one of his original designs for C three PO actually shows up in the episode of with C three PO and R two just kind of standing in the back. Yep. Lando's droid. So it's there's a lot of cool nods to to his work. I, I was reading. There's a a guy who who would appear on this other podcast named Paul Bateman, um, and he he's kind of like the he was a, an a associate and actually I believe friend of Ralph McQuarrie, and so they would kind of consult with him anytime they talked about the art, and they brought him on to talk about the show, and he was. He's just saying every episode is like a treasure trove of just different little things to spot where you 
uh, where you could tell like this is directly pulled from his work. And he's also just saying they did a great job of kind of looking at the style Ralph had and then recreating that themselves whenever they really didn't have anything particular to draw from. And another way in which this, um, aside from that, the Macquarie's influence, this the way the show is very distinct is that the character designs are a lot softer and smoother. Um, like the animation movement, like the movement animation feels a bit feels to be a bit more fluid, but there's also a lot less definition and just and uh, uh, texture to the animation that might have been simply due to budget. But it's just it's another way that this, this is very distinct. The like the characters' faces and and uh, designs they're, they're much more smooth and kind of rounded. Yeah, in a, in a weird way, it's it's both more cartoonish and a little bit more realistic at the same time. Like. It seems, you know, proportionally, this show seems a bit more realistic than maybe Clone Wars. Yeah, like the, the 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 looks in Clone Wars are very angled, almost like carved out of wood. Yeah, sometimes, you know, with, with some of the characters, it almost felt like genuine, just like caricatures. But uh, despite, yeah, the very round nature, like all, like the noses and the chins and stuff, um, I feel like they try to keep the proportions a little bit more accurate here. As for casting, I couldn't really find any sort of interesting stories here, but I, I feel like what's interesting here is just the cast themselves. Um, so we, we have Taylor Gray as Ezra Bridger, uh, Freddie Prince Jr. as Kanan uh, Jarrus, um, Vanessa Marshall as Harris Sandula, Tiva Sarkar as Sabine Wren, uh, very prolific voice actor Steve Bloom as Garazeb Aurelius, or most, mostly known as Zeb. Unless Harris Mad. That's true. Uh, I love it whenever you get the full name called at you. Uh, but David Ayello as Alexander Callis, uh, although this was you know a bit before he blew up uh, into stardom. I guess this, I think this was even right around the re- release of Selma. Yeah, because I, I remember in one of the podcasts I was listening to, there was kind of a, a bigger spotlight shown on this show than there would have been prior, if only just because of this this new up and comer who's already receiving all this Oscar talk is now you know is a recurring character in the Star Wars animated series. Uh, but I think he does fantastic here. Mm-hmm. And then I guess lastly, the the main characters are, are the more frequently recurring characters would be Jason Isaacs as the Inquisitor, who I think is a fantastic job here i i really love the character jason isaacs has a wonderful voice yeah we've got james earl jones returning as darth vader uh ashley Eckstein coming back for ahsoka tano and just another reason to love chopper you uh, <laughs> is chopper is voiced by our very own dave filoni so as with the Clone Wars, we don't know the exact budgets for these episodes, but we do know that it was significantly lower. Um, from what I hear, Lucas never actually made money off the Clone Wars, but since he was just he was paying for them out of pocket, they were his, you know his his baby, his passion project. He just kept making them, but uh, from what I hear, they, they were never profitable because the budgets were so big. That's why they look so good. And yeah, you, you can definitely tell. I think part I think part of the lack of texture in the world is due to the budget. And also, just there's there's a there's a general lack of scale in this in this show that you know we're constantly praising just the scale and visuals of the of the Clone Wars, and they do occasionally have some really cool stuff here. But overall, you can there's 
just not as much uh, wow factor in the show as there was. And you know, due to budget, so it's not a huge complaint, but it's just it's something there. Yeah, and I, I would say even in its, in its defense, you know, I think they use the the premise of the show um, kind of to its advantage, be, being set just on Lothal uh, and things like that. And you know, I, I guess it was a benefit to them the way Ralph painted. You know, like you said, there's so much empty space and everything, and yeah. you know, the space here is not filled nearly as much as it would be in Clone Wars, where you know, like I think season one of Clone Wars, you're in an alleyway and there's like three people there, and by the end of that series that the streets were bustling and every corner of every frame is, is occupied. But I think just because of, you know, the, the, their inspiration and the way they designed Lothal, they're able to, I, I think they did a really good job at hiding their budgetary constraints where a lot of the time, despite the fact that it looks the way it looks because of its budget, I think it also just, it looks how it should um, sometimes. Yeah, there was only one episode where I ever felt the characters looked like they were in a che- uh, low-budget anime TV show. The rest, the rest of the season, it just the, the character animation, the movement, the, the explosions, all of that looks quite good. So Kevin Kiner uh, returned to score the series, and so the show was introduced with uh, four shorts, which introduced each of the characters. They premiered on August 11th in 2014, and then the one-hour premiere spark of rebellion aired on october october 13th 2014 um so james do you what was your first viewing of this show and uh how was your was your relationship been with it like over the years so i actually went into it um immediately after i finished the clone wars for the first time because for some reason we had we had owned season one uh so we watched all of season one and i i really enjoyed it you know it's it was not so much a letdown, but you know, like we're coming off of the the highs of like seasons four through six of the Clone Wars, and this is a much more adventurous, lighter tone. Um, but I, I still ended up really enjoying it. Uh, and then I I think I got I bought a few of the episodes on YouTube because we didn't have them. Uh, we did we didn't own season two, and then I think school just happened. And that was that kind of put it into it, and I never really got back into it. So that's part of what I'm excited about here is uh is now I'm able to to finish the series because I, I think I got about halfway through season two, and, and that was it. So I'm looking forward to finally finishing it. Um, so for me, I, I actually watched the Clone Wars. Well, I had started the Clone Wars and got bogged down, and then uh, our our friend uh, Josiah from uh the the uh reformed cantina on facebook kept sharing clips from rebels uh like some really cool stuff from season two and three i was like this is like this is amazing i really want to watch this so i guess i'm gonna go finish clone wars so then i went watch the clone wars and then jumped onto this this would have been like i think year and a half ago um then i watched the little show and then obviously season four only came out it's only been like just a little over six months since season four came out it feels like it's been a lot longer but it feels like this has been in the rear view for quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then I, uh, I, you know, I've been keeping up with it. I caught up to season three, then kept up with it as it came out. And as far as my relationship with it, uh, I have to. Get, I, I want to give a big disclaimer about just as we go through the series. Like, it's it's very hard not to view this series as just a sequel to the Clone Wars, <laughs> because you know it it is the same creative team 
and then a lot of the same characters come back so it, it, like every step of the way I, I i have a tendency to try and compare it to Cl- to the clone wars and i, I well I, I don't don't think that's entirely fair because th- this so the, so the the Clone Wars was a very episodic show. You you would have a, a, a you know an arc here, an episode there, and you'd just be bouncing around between different stories and characters. Whereas uh, this is a very serialized show. You're you're with this one this one ship, and you know following their adventures in a very clear timeline where one adventure affects the, affects the next. So that obviously affects the kind of the variety of stories you're getting, but also it, with the lower budget, there's a lot you know a lot less of the action and. I think the biggest factor in why I don't like this as much as I would Clone Wars is whereas the the Clone Wars was a kid show in name only but Lucas knew it was mostly adults watching it so he was constantly pushing it this is truly a kid show on Disney XD and it really has to play by those rules um the violence is much more tame you don't see beheadings, sadly, uh, even though they happen. It's it's much. There's a lot a lot more humor. The the sp- stories are simpler. There's not. It doesn't have usually have the char- the thematic and character depth that the other show had. So it's just coming out the gate. If you're coming at it as a fan of you and wanting more Clone Wars, this is not that. And so I I, I want to you know bring that disclaimer. So when I do. Just uh, you know, unfavorably compare this to Clone Wars. I want to be understood that that's not, that doesn't mean this is this is bad. What this is is a kids anime show on Disney XD, and it, as that, it is very good at that. But you know, me me being an adult, my tastes don't always necessarily line up with what a kids show on Disney XD is. is. I'll say just just kind of get all that out of the way. This is a different show. I don't like it as much as the Clone Wars, but that's not always a bad thing that doesn't mean this show is bad because of that i think i actually have less of an issue with the tone as you and you know i I think it's inarguable that you know it it's it's lighter because of moving over from cartoon network which really just didn't really care too much what you put on it (laughs) that's where we're supposed to disney xd yeah as opposed to disney xd which is you know oh by disney just very very protective of their brand and cares about what what's aired there um but I think, again, for me, I don't mind the, the tone so much because every now and then, yes, it feels too childlike, but often it just feels very tonally in line with something like A New Hope, um, just really adventurous, focused on playful banter. <laughs> and I also think really childish humor really can get to me sometimes. And so, <laughs> you know, I'll sit down by the five-year-old watching the show and I'll laugh with them. So, um I actually, I actually enjoy a lot of kind of the the more lighthearted, adventurous tone. Okay, I right, uh, first I want uh, before we get into the main episodes, I, I do want to talk briefly about these shorts. The first one is the, the Machine and the Ghost. Uh, this one is directed by Dave Filoni, and these first two shorts were written by Greg Wiseman. And this one we have uh, Chopper Kaden and Harrison Dula are trying to fight off Tie Fighters in the Ghost. Um, and on these shorts are just just to introduce the characters and you know get there up uh, so we can get who they are. And I, this one's kind of funny because you have a Harris flying and Kanan's in one of the gun turrets and they're both kind of yelling at each other and there's a lot of banter and each of them is telling Chopper to go do something else and he'll go to that and then the other person will tell Chopper to go do something else. It's just, you know, obviously very, fu- very kiddie, but it's still, I think, quite fun. And there's a lot of good chemistry, especially between Kanan and Hera. 
Yeah, I think to me, this is the best of the shorts, in my opinion. Um, although I think the Zeb one is a pretty close second. But <laughs> this highlights one of my favorite things about this series. And it's, I, I think my two favorite characters are Kanan and Hera. Absolutely. The way, you know, and this is kind of getting into the season one, which I guess I'll refrain from. But, you know, I just, I like the way they grow up, but I, I love their banter with each other where it's like, it's very playful. It's, you know, you, you've got a sense of like this friendly competition and they'll jab each other, but you can tell they actually care. And, and Chopper is just kind of stuck in the middle, be, like sarcastically insulting everyone. And um, I don't know, I, I, I had a lot of fun with this one. And then, you know, by the end of it, they're telling him to do what the other person was saying and kind of understand why Chopper gets fed up with them sometimes. But yeah, I, it was really enjoyable and, and it kind of took me back to, you know, that, that first um, aerial battle in A New Hope where Han and Luke are both in their little gun ports and, and you've got the, the shouting across the, the tunnel. And yeah, I, I, I like this one quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, next one is Art Attack and directed by Justin Ridge. And this one, Sabine Wren sabotages an Imperial Air Base. Uh, and Sabine is a Mandalorian, which is interesting. A purple Mandalorian. Uh, explosive export, expert and artist. Uh, I don't like this one, like, at all. I don't either. Uh, I, I really dislike so this one quite a bit. <laughs> I guess I guess we should take this opportunity to talk a bit about the characters. I think Sabine is probably my least favorite character of the crew. We'll get to this more later, but I, I, I don't find there to be a lot there. She is just kind of the manic pixie dream girl she likes art and colors but there's very little occasionally they'll do some stuff with her but i don't i never really feel much characterization beyond that until season three they do some really good stuff with her in season three but like for the season one and i believe two i don't remember i don't remember fully but i just don't says a lot behind her like zeb zeb doesn't have a lot of depth either but he has a huge boisterous personality sabine is just art girl and occasionally explosive girl and she's like doesn't even have, have a lot of dialogue. I don't know. Does it feel like that too? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the exact same thing. Um, she feels like she exists there for Ezra to kind of like hard eyes somebody. Like it's she's there to be, you know, that oh will they, won't they? Um, and I, you know, having not seen season three, I hear they do a lot of cool stuff with her, but contained solely here. Um, yeah, it. it it seems like she is just a placeholder. Like we we want X amount of crew members, and we're gonna put her there. And, and you know, props to the art department for making her look distinct. Uh, I I don't like her actual art, like the the painting of of um, Ezra and uh, Zeb really annoys me. I hate that style. <laughs> like, with, even just within our universe, our universe, but within the Star Wars universe, it's awful. That's some of her finest work. Yeah, well, then she needs to find a new hobby. Uh, But I also just really, like, even to keep it within this short, I really dislike how they turn her into Batman, where they're looking over here. She hides behind this TIE fighter. There she is. And the camera, you know, switches behind the Clone Wars, and now she's all of a sudden behind them. I mean, it's literally like a lighthearted, playful version of, like, the warehouse scene in Batman Begins. Only in there, you know, you've got the zip lining. It's ridiculous, but you can justify it. Here, it's this like 16 year old girl teleporting all across this camp. And it's, I don't know. And I, I'm not, I mean, I know that stormtroopers being incompetent is kind of the running joke, but they really push it. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, I I never <laughs> never thought about the Batman thing, but the one reason I really dislike this, aside from Sabine being kind of a nothing character, is this: the Empire is not dangerous. Like in the, the, the first half of season one, the Empire is simply not dangerous, especially here. They're simply the butt of jokes. They, I mean, obviously, we know that Stormtroopers can never hit anything, but there was always a threat. You know, you there was always the Empire always had. A, an element of threat you know you can't if you mess with them there will be consequences and pretty much you always have to run and here she's like just walking around teasing them and they're they're, they're just completely useless and i this show does credit records do the show definitely does get better. I, just, I just watched the premiere of season two and i was like oh my gosh the, the empire is scary again but for season for, for, the, for like for here and the way they're introduced it just really rubbed me the wrong way and just how completely useless and unimposing the Empire is as the antagonist for this show. Yeah, and I think more than any other aspect of the show, because like I said, I am actually really on board for the tone and for a lot of the humor, but the where this really shows itself as being a kid's show to me is in the villains outside of the Inquisitor, because I think the Inquisitor, the Inquisitor is pretty fantastic here in season one. But the the stormtroopers and I forget the names the the two imperial officers Abbott and Costello, pretty much. Although you know we don't see it, but the, they're dispatched by a superior villain. It seems like the stormtroopers are here to make the kids laugh. Like, oh look at these silly guys! They can't even keep up with us. Or like it's you know it's it's not particularly engaging for an adult to watch. And it only works when Zeb's doing it. Yeah, because Zeb's super cool. I love Zeb. Oh, that's that's really it. Yeah, I'm just I don't feel like it tells me anything about her character. What do you mean? She likes bright colors. That's true. I guess that's all you need to know at this point. Um, so the next one is Entanglement. This one's uh also directed by Justin Ridge and written by Henry Gilroy and Stephen and Simon Kinberg. And this one, Zeb brawls with some stormtroopers. Um, so Zeb is the muscle. He's Jane uh, from Firefly. He's except well, he's not as just evil as jane um, uh or chewbacca you know he's the muscle he's he's a bit dense he's got a quick temper he likes picking fights yep yeah, kind of jane just a bit a bit more good uh so yeah he runs across some stormtroopers who are abusing a citizen and he cracks their heads together which is a funny running gag which is what whenever zeb gets a chance he knocks stormtroopers heads together uh, well we made this one kind of even though again the empire is absolutely useless like like you have like 10 guys surrounding zeb and they all have guns instead of you know maybe shooting him they all run to fight to punch him even though they have guns like well um but like as he's fighting Kanan's calling you know you know where are you we're at the rendezvous he's like oh, i'm busy wait are you fighting stormtroopers no zeb are you embarrassing the imperials again <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines from the show but yeah so it's just a you know a funny little thing very the tone is very playful and goofy um and yeah i i again i don't really like what it does to the imperials but as it is just on its own it's kind of funny yeah i i like zeb a lot in the show like you said kind of like sabine there's not too much here with him you know they kind of they really get a, a little bit more into it you know as we talk about the the, the genocide of, of his race but um even after that he kind of like just one episode later reverts to just the the good-hearted muscle but as it stands i i like their take on the good-hearted muscle <laughs> I, I really like the dynamic he has with ezra uh 
that annoy like just the annoying big brother who's gonna like punch you in the shoulder just because he can and he's bigger and he still resents you for being forced to share a room and their entire dynamic I think is a lot of fun and I think a lot of the childish the childish humor comes from them and I end up laughing at the majority of it just because uh, I also have an older brother so uh, some of <laughs> yeah. this struck a chord. Yeah. I've never once bought that Zeb was part of the honor guard of the Lasat Empire. Just no. This this guy's a man child, and I love him for it. But I don't know, he's, maybe the he's honor a child. guard was a guard full of man children. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yes. Yeah, so he, yeah. He's a very, a very fun character. And last one is um, the property of Ed, the property of Ezra Bridger. This one's directed by Dave Filoni and written by Simon, Simon Kinberg. And in this one, Ezra steal Ezra Bridger steals some souvenirs from a downed Tie Fighter. And this one, we are introduced to Ezra Bridger, who is Aladdin, I guess. Um, you know, the a street rat. That is exactly and, what my sister and I, who are watching it together, just kind of refer to him as. Oh, there's Aladdin. Gotta keep one step. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's a yeah. He um he watches a a battle with the ghost and Tie Fighters, and the Tie Fighter crashes, and he goes in, you know, presumably to help rescue the pilot. But instead, he robs him blind and then um, stuns the pilot <laughs> as he leaves, and of course steals helmets because he likes helmets, which is a, a fun little thing that uh, kind of goes also goes throughout the series. And uh, one one cool thing I noticed is that uh, he sent when the type after he robs the uh, the pilot, he goes to uh, the t- the pilot goes to shoot him, and he senses it like he's walking away and he stops and jumps out of the way just in time, like really subtle, subtly showing that he has the force without actually showing it yeah you know this episode kind of or this short kind of just came and went for me uh, i liked it uh but maybe it's just because ezra doesn't really have anyone to play off of other than just the imperial trooper uh you couldn't really establish any sort of dynamic and and it could also just be because i was singing uh one jump in my head for the entirety <laughs> of the short um but yeah i mean it's funny and i i noticed that too i thought that was cool i like the I like that kind of sound, the audio cue whenever his his force sense is tingling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the subtle force theme. It gets a bit overused as the show goes, but for like the first couple episodes when we're just learning about his force power, every time you hear it, and he doesn't know what it is, but it's just kind of, kind of subtly pointing you in that way. So the first episode proper is Spark of Rebellion. This is a two-parter. It's directed by Stuart Lee, Stephen G. Lee, who is Stuart Lee's brother, who they brought on, and Dave Filoni, and written by Simon Kinberg. And uh, this one, Ezra Bridger accidentally falls in with the group of rebels uh, led by Kanan. And right at the opening, this I believe this opening scene was only in the home video release. We see Vader commissioning the Inquisitor, um, which is a pretty cool little scene. And then we go back to uh, to Lothal, which is basically where ninety percent of this show takes place. Uh, so Ezra saves a citizen from as uh, the Imperials come in and they're abusing a citizen, and Ezra steals one of the um, the, the the communicators and then t- t- uh, puts on a posh British accent and gets the guys to leave. So I mean, you kind of see that he he wants to help, but then of course he robs the uh, the uh, the seller blind as well. Yeah, it's they don't make him, you know, all of the thievery he does here is mostly just, you know, I mean, exactly what you'd see in something like Aladdin. Um, one of the things I liked here is you, you do see actual growth for him as a character between where he is here and, and where he is later, you know, even just in this season. 
um, his willingness to just kind of help for like help himself and fend for himself and he'll help other people when he can because he still has a conscience. But um, it is still primarily you know just him looking out for himself. Mm-hmm. And I like how it happens like in little steps along the way, like when um, and kind of almost like little accidents where. You know, he he's accidentally caught up with the rebels. They they save his life, so he kind of feels like he owes him a debt. And then he has like there's moments when they're attached to the ship, and Harris, you know, is trying to get him to go warn the others that it's a trap. And you, you he kind of bucks at that because he he doesn't want to stick his neck out. And just the little bits and pieces as he slowly gets more and more. And there was one really nice moment I saw for him, like after they they find they they like steal a shipment, and then he goes and helps them distribute the food to the poor red target town and you just kind of see his face as everybody's coming around and, and thanking him for doing this even though he wasn't a part of it um you know for for, for steal for giving them this food and you, you kind of just see the um the appeal of doing the, the right thing uh for him yeah and i think they really have that that growth pinned down for him like you know they they know where they want to take the character and it, it almost feels like even moments like that are are kind of referenced, maybe not directly referenced, but we're meant to have that in the back of our mind, you know, as we get to future episodes like Path of the Jedi, where where he's explaining to Yoda, he's like, I want to protect these others because these people with me, they they don't care about themselves, it's just others. And, you know, you, you see how he kind of grows into the person who's like, wow, these guys are different from everyone else. And uh, like you said, I, it... it it's not just that one moment, you know, he, he may join with them by the end of this two part episode, but you know, even going in episode three, there's still a lot of similarity between who he was before. And, and I like that we get to kind of see him grow into this new kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. As so it opens with a fun sequence that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the ghost crew is stealing a shipment from the Imperials. Then Ezra jumps in and steals one of for himself and, a whole long chase and eventually they're cornered the ezra's cornered and uh this the ghost who comes back to rescue him and get the uh the payload um and and uh, i just i like kanan in this whole thing where he's kind of he's just kind of amused by ezra even though you know he's getting in their way and stealing stealing their uh their cargo he's just he he likes his spunk and and uh, he, that kind of convinces him to try and get uh ezra on with them um yeah it's just a fun little interactions <laughs> i love when uh, ezra first gets on he's like he's talking to somebody he's like uh my name's ezra what's yours and then the camera pans over and zeb's like right in his face my name's zeb <laughs> yeah there's yeah i think there's actually a lot of really cool you know not super nuanced and you know just incredible and mind-blowing but there's some a bit of cool you know storytelling in this whole action sequence where you know they find a way to actually give um, an introduction to all the characters like you know Sabine is on the crate and she's like if Kanan gets you he's gonna kill you and she just kind of unhooks the thing and stops on her own crate um, and like you said with Zeb and and with Hera and Kanan like everybody kind of gets their moment to be introduced and the the, the episode never really stops uh, just to say hey this is who this is it just kind of it happens along with this whole uh, you know action sequence happening which I think it's actually kind of fun. Speeder chases are always fun in Star Wars. And, you know, with Solo having released now, this this whole highway really reminds me of the opening scene on Corellia with with him and his kind of hotshot speeder. Um, so, yeah, I, I like the 
I like the introduction to all of the characters and how it just kind of weaves in and out of this whole theft. And so we're we're also introduced to Agent Callus, who's an ISB agent um, who is tasked with trying to find the ghost crew. And as we mentioned, he's a voice by David Oyelowo, very, you know, authoritative, uh, proper British accent. I like him a lot. And he has these really beautiful mutton chops. Just a, a real man. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he puts his helmet on and then shaves because his helmet fits perfectly over his huge mutton chops. I did not see that. That's funny. So with, with with the ghost crew, where they're at when we meet them is they're not they're actually not really rebels. They're pretty much an independent crew that is just kind of going around stealing for a living and helping people and, and helping people who are being abused by the Empire when they can. And I think occasionally they're taking, they'll get like tips from Fulcrum, who is the, who we find out is you know, the agent working for the f- very fledgling rebellion. But as of now in the show, they're pretty much an independent crew, just kind of trying to survive on the outskirts of society. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think they kind of mention it either in this episode or other episodes where it almost seems like they know they're not doing a whole lot. But they're doing everything maybe for the the people they come directly into contact with. You know, at this point, you know, they love putting dents in the empire where they can. But you know, until they finally group up with you know other splinters, right now it's just about helping the people that we can help. You know, um, and that's what a lot of these episodes are at first. It's just the empire is doing this. We're going to steal this and help these people, and then we're going to do this. It, you know. I think it's kind of it's it's a weakness that the first half of the season has where it it really does feel like you could entirely remove a couple of episodes and not really hurt the the season at all um, because they are so self-contained. Like in this episode, the ghost crew does this, and and then that's about it. But I, I still kind of like the way they set up what the crew of the ghost is and what their mission is, which is pretty much just you know. If we can hurt the Empire, awesome. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to help out the people we can, like, while we do it. Yeah. Um, so the crew goes to rescue some Wookiees and they find out it's a trap. And Ezra goes back in to warn them, which is kind of like his first big heroic act. And it doesn't turn out well because he gets, he gets captured. And in a really dark moment, like, the, the ghost crew escapes and Zeb's kind of at the door. And Ezra's going to escape and Callus grabs him and he's... And, and Zeb makes the choice of you, sorry, kid, you did good, and closes the doors like, whoa, <laughs> this just got pretty dark um, for the show it was. But I do like the, you know, the ghost crew pretty much immediately uh, decides you know, they, 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 that they can't leave him. And I know it does add a bit to Zeb that he, I guess, you know, <laughs> a more unsavory side to Zeb that he uh, was the one kind of who made the choice because no one else knew he was the one who made the choice to leave him behind. Even though that probably was the only decision they could have ultimately made in that, in that those circumstances, but still it, it is dark. Yeah. And you know, especially no, like watching it and l- looking at him as they're like, they're back on the ghost. You can, you can tell that like just in the animation of his character, he's kind of like sulking in the corner, just hoping nobody brings it up. And like the second they mentioned it, his eyes shifter. I was like, Oh, um, yeah, very, very ready to shift. A blade. very Jane thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So they they come back and rescue him, and, and it was really cool. Again, he 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 his you know his helmet obsession. He gets one. He's giving false information and orders around. He's crawling through the vents, and he also overhears about the Wookies, which you know again you know, like 
they give very good reasons as to why he slowly integrates and ingratiates himself with this crew. Like he's the one who hears the information about the where the, the Wookiees actually are and gives that to them. Um, so he you know, he he actually does pull his weight. They're not just oh we're gonna help you because you're the main character. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean it's it's kind of made believable as well just because you know Sabine is already on the team and I think she's only meant to be two years only one year older on Empire Day when he turns fifteen and so you know maybe that's just a you know a look at the uh, the desperate nature of, of the Ghost Crew where you know if you can if you can help out in any way they're they're ready to pull you up although you know. I guess it's Ezra's sensitivity to the Force that really... Oh, yeah, that's the big thing. Um, so, yeah, then they go to rescue the Wookiees, and the Wookiees look horrible. Yeah. Um, like, he's like, there's like a 15-minute featurette on the Clone Wars, talking about how when they introduced Chewbacca, they really tried hard to match as closely as possible his, his design. They didn't try at all here. They're really just... They look like Wii characters or something. Yeah, I, I remember when this series debuted and I was just scrolling through article after article of just like, why do the Wookiees look bad, or that bad? You know, Rebel Season 1, great debut, but let's talk about that design. Like, just those kind <laughs> of articles all over the place. And when I first watched it, I was like, ooh, yeah, but I get it now. <laughs> those look pretty terrible. Um, I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, Zeb is what he is and not a... What is it, the... <laughs> Rare hairless Wookiee. Exactly, yeah. That um, was a funny joke. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it worked for me. But, uh, yeah, I'm, all I've got to worry about is that little beard of his. Yeah, so, again, it's a trap. And in a really cool moment, Kanan reveals to the galaxy that he is, in fact, a Jedi. And I... I it's so inconvenient, but I love the way he yeah he pulls his, his lightsaber off his belt in two pieces and connects it together, then ignites it. I don't know, something about the way that's done really it just gets me every time. Yeah, you know, a lot of time you know this series does look pretty pretty good in the way it's shot. Um, I think a lot of it they they kind of mimic the the composition. There's a, a couple of moments where. It, it almost feels like they've just got these really beautiful kind of canvas shots that almost feel like Empire Strikes Back. But here, you know, the way they kind of rotate the camera around him as he puts the pieces together and ignites the saber. And of course, you've got the epic force theme playing and, and you've got um, Callus actually, you know, saying like, it's a Jedi. And I, I think that does a good job at helping the audience really like get their bearings in terms of where the time period is, especially if you're just coming onto this coming right off of the Clone Wars, you know. At, at this point in time, the Jedi haven't been seen for a while because, you know, like the opening crawl of A New Hope since, you know, Vader, or no, not the opening crawl, uh, Obi-Wan tells Luke, you know, Vader hunted down the last of the Jedi. And so we're, we're, we're pretty much seeing the, the, res, the first resurgence in the Jedi for potentially years and years. Uh, I think all, all of that together makes that just a really, really cool moment. And it's on Kessel, which is even cooler now having seen Solo. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. The, the, and they kept the design for Solo. Like, it's a very similar look on Kessel, which is, just shows how wonderfully interconnected these are. Yeah, and same color palette and everything. Yeah, so Ezra goes to save a wicked kid, and he's trapped by Callus, but then the ghost comes up and they rescue him. <laughs> like, so uh, Caden deflects the uh, the balls back at, at Callus and throws him over the edge and after they fly away the camera pans down and uh, Callus is hanging onto the pillar and then we hear from below him first time ever first time seeing a Jedi and the camera pans down again we see the, the um 
another stormtrooper that had been knocked off previously. <laughs> it's just a, a really beautiful visual gag. Yeah, there's, you know, for all of like the the very childish stuff that even I'll laugh at, I, I think there are a lot of moments where the humor works really good, and I think a lot of it, you know, is just Dave Filoni and and, and Disney are really putting a lot of talented writers through the series and, and getting the right guys back from Clone Wars. So there's some gags that that are really good. There's a couple of things we missed over the course of the episode. Uh, Ezra's been kind of inve- sneaking into Kanan's room and he finds his lightsaber and he, he also found a holocron and he steals it and later on we find out that um, Kanan knew about it all along it was, kind of, it was really cool it was a really cool moment because he stole it and he actually opened it in the opening I think it was actually in his sleep and then it plays through Obi-Wan's me- encrypted message that he sent out after the fall of the Jedi to warn all, all the um which we've never seen before so it was really cool to see that yeah it makes revenge of the sith really you know having because you know like i said i'd already seen all of season one before so i knew about that scene and then re-watching revenge of the sith for this episode when when obi-wan comes back and he's like you know i've sent out a transmission warning everyone away like it's cool to know he's he's literally walking away at that moment from recording the message that we're now seeing uh that's yeah. really cool bits of continuity it's just wonderful hearing James Arnold, uh, James Arnold Taylor's voice again. Oh, yeah. So yeah, then we find out, uh, we realize that Kanan knew that he had stolen the Holocron and basically gave it to him as a test to see if he could open it and if he actually knew the Force. And so after all this happened, they drop Ezra back on the Thal. He goes back to his um, he goes back to his tower, and in a really cool sh- scene where he he kind of goes in and stops and is like, and then we hear the Force music and he asks, "What's the Force?" And the camera kind of pans over. And we see Kanan behind him. It's just like a really cool little reveal where you see his force sensitivity. One of the things one of the things I like about how they play with the force with Ezra is so much of it, you know, for the audience who's aware of what the series is, we know what it is, but they kind of play it up in ways where he can just kind of write it off as like instincts and thinking on his feet and intuition and stuff like that. Um, and it at, at first, you know, it really is just kind of like I've got a bad feeling about this, um, you know, like whether it's in the short and dodging or, you know, feeling like there's somebody behind us. And so he'd say that, but, you know, we, we see the way the force calls to him magnify as, as the episodes go on. Next episode is Droids in Distress. This one uh, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Greg Wiseman. And this one, uh, low on money and fuel, the ghost crew decides to steal an Imperial shipment for the pirate uh, Sacatro Visago. And one one really cool thing that like we said Zeb doesn't get a, a much um character development, but I like that he doesn't w- like being an arms dealer. You know, he joined the Ghost Crew to be to be you know someone who would fight against the rebellion and help the people, and he really just doesn't like the idea of just you know being an arms dealer for criminals. And it's kind of a conversation that goes over the course of the episode because it ends up it, it turns out there's what they're stealing from the Empire is these uh these uh, disruptors which I'm not entirely sure what they do but they're just big boom guns and to make pretty colors yeah it turns out those were used against his people when uh, the Empire essentially exterminated the entire Lasat population yeah you know they they end up revealing that it's Callus who gave the order and so you you kind of have that though we don't see it come up too much across the rest of the season but you it's in the back of your mind knowing that there's something more personal between Zeb and Callus than perhaps the rest of the crew. Yeah, so there's one thing I don't understand about this episode is they're going to steal the disruptors. At the same time, Minister Tua 
is, who is a imperial official is going to purchase them and she is accompanied by R2-D2 and C-3PO. Surprise. Which I, I don't understand how they got into place. We later on learn that they were sent by Bail Organa in order to stop the Imperials from getting these disruptors. Okay. But he didn't even tell C-3PO. So C-3PO is just there for some reason. R2-D2 is the one with the mission. And so, like, as they're as they're going, and you know, as the rebel, the ghost who kind of goes to steal them, and C three PO kind of goes along with it, and R two D two goes along with it. C three PO is like panicking and trying to run back to the Empire and going to the stormtroopers. It just it doesn't make a lot of sense to send you know this incredibly incompetent droid to go do this secret mission when he doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't even know he's on the mission. And how and how and how did he become attached to Minister Tui in the first place? Yeah, that's the thing, you know. C three PO kind of says, you know, we are the. I think he even states that they're her property and they belong to the Empire. And so they, you've got that entire explanation that never really happens. And the whole thing feels like just a contrived way to get C three PO to reiterate the secret mission. What secret mission? You know, like <laughs> yeah, you know, we we get it. Yeah, we've been here before. It's all funny, but in this case, it actually doesn't make too much sense. Yeah, so their inclusion, I think a lot of the cameos of this of this series work themselves in, in in pretty natural ways, but of all of them, this one feels more shoehorned. Yeah. Um. So they they, they steal them and they go to sell them to Vizago, but they were tracked. Oh no, C three betrays them, and Callus shows up. And a pretty cool scene, you know, Callus comes and uses a stolen bow rifle, which is which he stole when he when he slaughtered the uh, the honor guard, which is the same weapon that uh. Zeb carries and he challenges them to like this formal duel and they have a pretty cool fight before um yeah before Zeb saves uh Zeb, uh, no, not Zeb for Ezra saves Zeb's life in his first real display of the force yeah yeah so then they they escape and they return the droids to Bail Organa who um it's just this but Bail is just by, like when I going into Rebels and reading the Ahsoka book learning about what Bail has been doing over the last like 10 15 years He's just so awesome. He's been like kind of just traveling around, gathering intel and making contacts with people who are unhappy with the Empire, trying to slowly put together the seeds of what eventually becomes the rebellion. Because the, the rebellion does not exist at all. Like all we have at this time is just like a couple cells and just people that that uh, Bail guys trying to connect to each other. So it's really cool to see him right here, like right right around the beginning, uh, as he's. As he um, is trying to, you know, lay the foundations for something. Yeah, I love how lovingly he's uh, he's created here, like in this Disney era uh, of Star Wars. You know, you, you, he's really cool in Revenge of the Sith for what he's in. But you know, they're able to do a lot more with his character and in the Clone Wars and in the book, like you mentioned, and in this series, showing how he's instrumental with the the rebellion and even just in his cameo in Rogue One. You know, like when he walks out and the the, the force theme plays it it feels like they're giving him a, a bigger status than he had beforehand and and now you know if you're watching it all in marathon he's, he's a really cool character to follow our next episode is fight or flight uh this one's directed by Stephen g lee and written by kevin hops and while shopping in town ezra and zeb run into trouble and end up seeing a tie fighter and unfortunately this is again fruit shopping what, what, what's with uh, these uh, Dave Filoni and fruit shopping? <laughs> it was, it's really funny that you pointed out, uh, pointed this out because in in one of the podcasts I was listening to covering this episode, someone 
someone called in and they were just saying, like, I think we've got to find out if, if he just, if Filoni had a really bad grocery experience and he just finds subtle, <laughs> not so subtle ways of, you know, putting that into his shows. But, you know, I, I will say I prefer this fruit shopping episode to the Clone Wars fruit shopping episode, which was just genuinely uh, oh, awful. Oh, 100%. However, it's still a fruit shopping episode. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's ridiculous so, and yeah. So basically, they're they're a one big unhappy family and they're stuck in the ship and everyone's fighting and Ezra's trying to flirt with Sabine. She's not having it. And then Ezra and Zeb and Chopper are running around causing mayhem and Hera gets sick of it and sends them shopping to go find Melu run fruit. Uh, whatever. And like, it's just. <sighs> You would literally, you would really send these the two hotheads to go into town full of Imperials just to get them out of your hair. It's like not that not very good strategy, Hera. Yeah, it's it's a bit out of it's a bit out of character for her, you know. It, especially considering how stubborn they are, and you know, you tell them to to find this thing that you think they're never going to find. It is, you know, there's so many different possibilities that this could happen with these these two characters and the the general premise the idea of it just kind of being this inconsequential run that ends up like ending in a the theft of a tie fighter i really don't even mind it it's it's pretty fun i I like the episode for the most part it's just i think the only reason that i don't enjoy it as much as i would otherwise is this one is kind of the first in just a long series of of kind of almost standalone episodes um but I probably enjoyed this one more than the others. Yeah. So they go into town and they run the Imperials and end up stealing a TIE fighter because why not? Uh, and there's a running gag throughout where um, Ezra keeps bothering Zeb, but whenever Zeb turns to kill him, he says, well, I saved your life last episode, <laughs> so you can't. And so Ezra's on the run and then Zeb's kind of flying by and like, he won't let him, he won't let him into the ship unless he says they're even. They're kids. This this guy was not on any honor guard. <laughs> and then it, it takes a really dark turn where we see that the Empire is buying up land, or in this case, do, you know, the, the, an old farmer won't sell his farm, so they just come in and blow it up and then haul him off to, so I guess, a concentration camp or something. And so they, they go and rescue the farmers and have kind of a fight, and it's a dumb fight because he's, like, throwing fruit at the stormtroopers oh, and winning yeah. while awful. they have blasters. Come on. Um, I do like the line when, uh, as they're flying back to the to uh, the ship, and like they they finally have to admit to Hera that they stole a tie fighter. Like, you have to get rid of it. Like, they both in unison, do we have to? <laughs> they're really like two brothers together. I really like the that whole scene where they're going back and uh, is that a tie fighter right here? And like, no, no, and they're uh, he's asking him, you know, like. Did you already disable it? Like, yeah, yeah. No, down there. The the, the green wire. It's the red wire. Oh, yeah, the red wire. We, we knew that whenever we did it before. Uh, it, I think it's, it's really funny. And like I said, the the whole dynamic between, you know, these these two kids all constantly getting in trouble with mom and dad. And, you know, they'll come together for a cover-up. But it's it's pretty inconsequential, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, they come back to the ship and it ends with them back together as a team trying to abuse Chopper. One big happy family again. Um, next one is Rise of the Old Masters, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Henry Gilroy. As Kanan uh, trains Ezra in the forest, they receive a transmission from Jedi Master Luminara and Dooley, who is in an Imperial prison. And a, it opens with a cool scene of uh, Kanan trying to train Ezra in the forest. He's, he tells me, you know, do or do not. There is no try. And Ezra's like, what does that mean? He's like, 
yeah that, that one always confused me too <laughs> i love that they call that out yeah I, I, it, it almost feels like a recurring theme from here on the show it seems like we're opening a lot just kind of on these like halfway through these forced training sessions with uh with ezra and you know a lot of the times like what in typical kid show fast you know he's he's having to learn something in that episode and and it becomes almost the theme of the the episode as it goes along. Yeah, I do like the, the fact that you know Kanan was a fairly young Padawan when Order sixty six happened, and he you know he pretty much left the entire Jedi way behind until five years earlier when he connected with Hera, and so he's he never had his full training, and so he's now he's trying to train a Padawan with just like you know whatever little snippets he remembered from his training, like giving out little you know bits of wisdom that he has no idea what they even mean. He's just doing because he heard Yoda say it. And he's just, you know, him and Ezra both getting frustrated, frustrated at each other. And Ezra kind of takes it personally when Kanan decides, they get, they get the message from Luminara and he's like, okay, we can rescue her and then she can teach you. And, and Ezra takes that as kind of a, a rejection on Kanan's part. You know, he, he joined them to try and get for Kanan to teach him. And now Kanan's trying to pawn him off on someone he, he's never met. Yeah. That really becomes kind of a, what defines their uh, their master Padawan relationship up until uh, forget the I think it's Path of a Jedi episode the same one with Yoda where he's confronted by Yoda and pretty much says yeah you've you've got to really buck up and and learn to train the boy but whether it's you know pawning him off on Luminara or or kind of putting training him on the back burner I I like that that's that's front and center with char- uh, the character of Kanan where you know, he he doesn't really have much to go on, and you can feel it in his lessons. They keep bringing that up. Where these these lessons are very much like, what can I throw together with a hodgepodge of what I remember beforehand? Yeah. So they go and uh, break into the prison where Luminara is, um, but it turns out it's actually a trap, and Luminara is a mummy. It somehow they're sending out like this force echo from her what her dead body which is a super creepy i don't know like a really dark concept that they're somehow using her dead body to call jedi to try and attract jedi to come and rescue her as a trap um and it's it's quite sad you know you know especially from viewers of the clone wars like it's, it's rather shocking if you've never seen the clones but you know as a viewer of the clone wars having had those episodes with ahsoka and luminari it is quite sad yeah i that whole concept is really creepy, you know, especially, I don't know how it is that they're like amplifying her so much where like they, they even see her at first until this projection kind of walks into this mummified well, I think, tube. I think that's a hologram. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would make more sense. A gotcha kind of thing. Yeah, the, the reveal of the mummified corpse is uh, it's a bit dark, especially, you know, maybe it'd be right at home in something like the Clone Wars, but, but here it stands out a bit more, you know, especially considering where we're at in this season. And I like what it says just about the state of the galaxy at this point, you know, because for people who know, you know, like we're, we're five years before a new hope. Maybe there, maybe we are going to see a bit more people. Maybe, maybe all the bad stuff happens in this five years and we still might get to see some of the old familiar faces. And I think this pretty firmly says, you know, like the majority of people that you liked are gone. You know, there's, yeah, we are really all that's left of the order at this point. It, it establishes the desperation pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, so the, obviously it, it's a trap and it, 
it's actually the Inquisitor is there. And Kanan tries to fight, but he is absolutely no match. And I love how the Inquisitor knows by his fighting style who his master was, and then he uses that to taunt him. One big quibble I have with the show is I do not like the thin lightsabers. Except for A New Hope. All the all three other movies have this like really thick, rich blade. And here there's like these super like pencil thin blades that I don't know, they just they just don't work for me. These are very much based off of Ralph McQuarrie. Like you see the shot or the painting he had of, of Luke clashing sabers with uh with Darth Vader. It really is like these super just pointy glowing things and you know, I'm I'm all for, you know, just paying homage and really taking inspiration from Ralph McQuarrie, but I agree. That's one aspect that I uh, I would not have minded if they kind of ditched for the more like universally used look of a saber. Mm-hmm. Although I do like the, uh, the the swirling helicopter double-bladed lightsaber that the, the uh, Inquisitors carry. It's pretty, oh, it, pretty it's, scary. It's pretty awesome the way he uses it too. Yeah. And so again, they escape at last minute, which is a very a running theme in the show. Uh, uh, half the episodes, you know, begin with a mission. Oh, it's a trap. Oh, we escape in the nick of time. I kind of wish they spent a bit more time reckoning with the fact that just how dark of a twist that, uh, you know, finding the body of Luminara and realizing that you are indeed the last Jedi in the galaxy. I kind of wish they, because it kind of seems like they're, they're back to the happy ghost crew by the end. And it doesn't feel like the episode ever really reckons with that. We, I think we hear more about this later on in, in other episodes, but that's still kind of part of my problem with this, especially with this first half of the season is even when you have stuff like this that you really can build with, it just seems by the end of it, you know, it still is kind of business as usual. And technically we walk away with this episode, yeah, learning more, you know, Luminar is gone and we are most likely all that's left. That's kind of what we thought even beforehand. So you could just take this episode out and never even really introduce the idea of Luminar and, and nothing's really changed. So all of these just feel very, very isolated. <laughs> one last thing. I, one thing I did think was funny about this episode though is, you know, as all this is happening and Hera is just kind of waiting for the rescue, she's even her simple plan of waiting around is uh, is kind of put <laughs> on hold and, and messed up because she happens to be emitting a frequency that is the exact same thing as the like this mating call for these giant flying mantas and you know for <laughs> the the visual of the the uh, giant man is coming after the ship is is pretty hilarious yeah next episode is breaking ranks directed by Stephen G G Lee and uh, written by Greg Wiseman this one Ezra goes undercover as a, a cadet at the Lothal Imperial Academy and meanwhile the ghost crew attacks an imperial shipment of kyber crystals uh, just about the, that, that attack on the uh, shipment of kyber crystals. Um, I really like the the um, the visuals of when they blow up the ship and the kyber crystal explodes as this giant green thing that just comes and just completely disintegrates the Tie Fighters. It's really cool. Yeah. So is this what the crystal crisis on Utapau was? No. This, oh. is, this, this something happens later. Uh, okay. Later on, I think, I think in season th- three or four. Okay. Yes, and then the rest of the episode is Ezra at the uh, training academy training uh, with some other cadets in what is basically a, a far less deadly version of the box from yeah, the Clone yeah. Wars. That's exactly uh, So essentially they're running around jumping on platforms and trying to get to the top first and there's a, kind of a comp- competition which is encouraged by Abbott and Costello who are the guys training. And one really cool thing I found is that uh, the Inquisitor is also watching 
the I guess probably a lot of different training academies, but he's watching to try and f- find people who are force sensitive by how well they perform, which is just kind of a scary thought. You know, how many kids has he discovered? And like, I guess that's the, that's the inquisitors. I guess the ones who wouldn't join are dead now. Yeah, and to me, I feel like you know the the implication would be that. That perhaps uh, Zaire, the the friend Ezra makes his older sister, that that's you know that's what that's what happened. You know, perhaps she was force yeah. sensitive and um, was taken by the Inquisitor. And like you said, it, it's really scary thinking, like looking at these tests with that in mind, where it's like the more you excel, the higher your likelihood of of either you know like kind of convert or die scenario happening. Yeah, so Ezra is there. He's stealing some kind of data do you remember what what was the data uh i don't even remember at this point yeah so they uh he go he makes friends with a, a kid named zero leonis and then uh um and so while they're uh they they ezra meets one of the students uh who is who is force sensitive and he real he discovers that the inquisitor has just has uh found him out and is going to uh take him away and disappear him and so and then him, Zara Leonis, I forget the other kid's name, but they, they all escape a uh, rather elaborate thing where they steal a uh, Imperial Walker and then escape with the ghost crew. But Zara stays behind because he's he's trying to find his um his older sister who was who was uh, who went to this academy then disappeared. So don't have I, I do enjoy the episode, but I don't have a lot to say about it. Yeah. I'll keep myself from sounding like a just a broken record, but yeah, there's there's just a lot of you know, here's the description of this episode and Here's where we move on with uh, with a lot of these initial ones. Yeah. Uh, next episode is Out of Darkness. This is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Kevin Hopps. And uh, this, and we have uh, Hera and Sabine are t- attacked by Frynox whilst looking for supplies at an abandoned base, which looks a lot like Crate. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I'm guessing they were both old uh, old Republic bases, so I'm assuming they were kind of built by the same design, but just the way the, with that gigantic gate that like, closes down with the the big, uh, you know, kind of warehouse inside. It looks a lot like the design for Crate. It opens with some uh, awesome Harris escape, you know, fighting Tie Fighters with the Ghost. Just, I, I don't know of any specific scene, but just watching Hera fly is awesome. She's just a really cool pilot. She's always very cool and collected in, in charge of what's happening. I uh, just see, oh, in general, Hera is just uh, probably my favorite character from the entire show. Just you know, she's she's kind of the mom of the group, but she's also just, she has so much character and intelligence in in uh, how she's voiced they, they don't go out of the way to, you know, to make her overly sexy or just over be overly motherly but she's just a very great balanced character who is d- d- very much the heart of this crew the one holding it all together and she's also the, the one the kind of the principled one who is almost the conscience of the group you know Kanan is, is the jedi but she just seems to be the one who's behind it all keeping this cell going and as we find out in this episode, she is the only one in contact with Fulcrum, who is the one who's, who's giving them their information. And you really see she's kind of the brains and the heart behind the whole operation. Yeah, and what I love about the characters, you know, of anybody who has any right to brag, I mean, maybe Ezra and Kanan, because they're, they're you know, Force-sensitive, but she kind of has it all together in a way that no one else really does. And she never feels like she holds that over anyone, you know. When she has to, to kind of really show her authority she will but for the most part you know she she kind of wants to blend into the background and allow everyone else's you know to shine in the way that she believes and 
Yeah, she she's the most fit to be a leader. But I think one of my favorite things about her is she wants that for Kanan. You know, she's like, she wants him to take charge. She wants Ezra to grow up to who she thinks he can be. And she's pretty much just trying to ensure that everyone stays on a path to be the like the best version that she sees in them. And and, and she knows how to encourage each of them to give their best. And she, and she she has a different method of communicating with each and every one of them. So it's really cool to watch. Yeah. And uh, you know, she doesn't really kind of hoard any of the accomplishment to herself, you know. And the most we get of, of her just kind of like being cocky is just in the, the you know, playful banter she has with uh with Kanan. And so Solid on a really, really likable character. There there's nothing really about her that I I ever get really annoyed with. So in this one we get a little bit of character for Sabine where we find out she had escaped from an Imperial Academy basically because she realized she is, was being used as a tool and so she somehow joined up with the ghost crew and now she's getting worried uh, that she might simply be used again because only, uh, Hera is the only one who will communicate with Fulcrum and she, you know, for obviously for you know, security purposes, she won't allow anyone else to meet him or meet her him or communicate with him. And so Hera and Sabine is just kind of getting worried that she is part of an organization that is way bigger bigger than her that she doesn't understand and if she doesn't understand you know how can she know it's it's they're on the uh, you're on the in the right in whatever conflict they're in um so yeah, it's just have to give her a bit more it is interesting I, I do wish they did a bit more with it however yeah it almost makes you wonder how recent her you know joining in with the the crew of the ghost happened because She's already young as is, you know, and with all of these memories, you know, like, oh, you know, when I was at the Academy, they didn't tell me this and that. And, you know, I could be falling into my old ways, you know, maybe that she's, you know, only a year or two with them. So uh, you kind of would understand, you know, when you have got the, just the state of the galaxy and what she's seen with the Empire and, and what she's, you know, not seen here with the, the the crew of the ghost mixed in with you know the fact she's the 16 year old girl you you really do understand why she's kind of hesitant to just you know take any sort of order without really knowing the bigger picture yeah um so they go to the, this uh, abandoned base try and find some supplies but then they are attacked by these the the Frynox from the dark uh as i mean uh, sabine and hera back to back uh trying to um fight off these monsters oh <laughs> it opened up with a uh, Ezra and Zeb were supposed to check on the, on the 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 Phantom, which is the ghosts, not escape pod, basically a, a separate little, uh, smaller ship that can, can attach to the the ghost, but they ended up fighting Chopper and they really didn't see that there was a fuel leak, so the, the uh they're out of fuel and basically trapped there as this gigantic, uh, some big rock in the sky, is uh. Like that, they never talked about why they're asteroids just floating in the sky, and I never thought about it. I don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, as they're basically fighting for their lives, and I like there's a they they basically set up like wave after wave of Rhydonia, which is this exact same type of uh, explosive that uh, Gregor used for his last stand in uh in a James's favorite arc from Clone Wars. Hey, well, one of the best scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overall, like the action hasn't terribly impressed me in this show, but I do really enjoy this action sequence as they're, you know, falling back to, uh, you know, to line after line of the uh, Rhydonium and blowing it up as the monsters keep coming. It's actually quite intense. Like you never think they're gonna die, but it's it's 
pretty intense. Yeah, I think with the the action of the of this series, at least contained within season one, you know, the the shootouts really do nothing for me. But I think where I really enjoy the action is whenever they kind of ha- have a hook for this specific sequence and they can turn it into more something more elaborate. Like I, I really like everything that happened when they stole the TIE fighter and Zeb flying upside down and all of this other, like <laughs> there's a lot of fun stuff they do there, but when it's just kind of like shooting like two different factions shooting at, at each other, I think that's, that's where the series doesn't really have anything fun to look at. Yeah. Just the image of them back to back with all the explosions. And the, I love the colors that the Rhydonium explodes in. And um, it's just so like, we, we get an image that a Hera, Hera has a plan, a greater plan for the crew, and she's in communication with Fulcrum, who's the one giving them these jobs, giving this information, and Hera like, won't tell anyone. Basically, she tells Sabine, like, if I give you information, that's something the Empire can torture you for. So she's you know, keeping her crew in the dark and won't even tell them like who they're working for, but, the, but she knows that there is a bigger something bigger that we're not, not actually told about in this episode and you know they take something that could just be really selfish and annoying and you know they could just turn her into Haldo um, <laughs> but it, I was thinking Haldo just now too. you know but instead you know they make it a very selfless thing like you know whenever all, all of a sudden now we're talking about torture you know it's like if anyone will be tortured for information it'll end up being me I don't want that for any of you I don't want I don't want this extra burden on you and I'll accept it myself. You know, it, it feels the opposite of self-centered. Uh, and I like how, how trusting Kanan is. Like at this point, you know, Kanan is like, like, yeah, she knows who Fulcrum is. I don't, I'm cool. We do, we do what Hera says. You know, I, I like the fact that it's not even like, she's not even telling Kanan and he has no idea that she, she even has contacts. Kanan's aware. And it's like, yes, Hera knows what's going on. And, and I'll put my trust in her. Yeah. There's <laughs> a funny line I noticed uh, when, uh, as they're escaping. He's like, he's like, there's this feature on there where it'll, it shocks all the fry knocks when they climb in the ship. He's like, I didn't know that. She kind of gets his face. There's a lot you don't know about my ship. I'm like, oh, I guess this is a kid's show, huh? Yeah. That, so I laughed at that line. And, you know, maybe there's just like a definitive answer. But I feel, so what is the relationship between Kanan and Hera? Is it, it really explored yeah. in... I assumed they were married for the first three seasons until I realized that they were kind of weren't together in season four. Well, it's just kind of spoiler, whatever, but like, I, I just basically, I assumed they were, you know, husband and wife crew. Cause the, that's, that's kind of their relationship. They, they're, they're, you know, they're calling each other honey and constantly flirting. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, just I'm kind pretty of sure she calls like, kind him of love off. more than Kane. Yeah. So I guess, I guess it's just kind of a off and on again, romance. No order breathing over your neck for Kanan, you know. What? <laughs> you got no Jedi order breathing over Kanan's neck this time. Yeah, exactly. Relationships are good. Next episode is Empire Day. This one's directed by Stephen G. Lee and written by Henry Gilroy. Um, and it's when Ezra is faced with questions from his past as the Ghost Crew investigates uh, some Imperial intel in the capital city on Luthal. Uh, <laughs> and this is a funny sequence where. Uh, Caden's trying to teach Ezra how to make connect, uh, connections with other living creatures through the Force, and he does that by throwing rocks at the Lothcats and making them angry to attack uh, to attack Ezra, so he'll be forced to make a connection with them to make him stop. And just the, the image of the the angry Lothcats is kind of hilarious. Yeah, I like that. It's kind of like this 
this recurring just image you see like we're we're always cutting to this loath guy. I like to think it's the same one, but uh <laughs> uh yeah, and it you know, it just shows how unconventional of a teacher Kanan is or you know he he really doesn't have anything any specific rule book to look back to and so he's like, I'm gonna teach him my way and so a lot of the training here is pretty fun to watch. Yeah, so then and they go into the uh to the capital city and it's Empire Day and there's uh parades and everything. And then they run into a Rodian uh, named what is his name? Sibo. Yes, named Sibo, uh, who is has the same uh, you know implant that Lobot has from Cloud City, and he, the, he's escaped from the Imperials, and the Imperials are searching for him, and he's basically completely um completely out of it. His mind's been so uh, muddled by all the information that he has. So he's escaped the empire and the empire wants him because he has a lot of information on the Imperial, um, on Imperial, uh, uh workings and whatnot. And the, their factories on Luthal. And as it turns out, Sibo was a, an old family friend of Ezra's, Ezra's family. And you know, as they're hunted, they go, they return back to his old family house and we kind of just see, get a little glimpse into Ezra's past. And one thing that was interesting I noticed is that Ezra's parents' names were uh, Ephraim and Mira. It's like they they all have Jewish names. Like I'm not. I wonder if the parallel is like is the fact that they were taken away by the Empire like in parallel with the Holocaust, or is it like do they is there some kind of image of a warm family life they're trying to get I mean, I mean, it was just it's just an interesting thing i noticed that they're, they're all have hebrew names yeah i guess there's a lot of different interpretations you know I, I think you know the holocaust one could make sense just in that you know there's there's always been a, like very explicit parallels between the empire and you know um you know nazi occupied germany and yeah uh, I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out, though. And uh, D. Bradley Baker voices uh, his father in the flashbacks. Oh, nuts. Yeah, so, and this is officially where I start feeling like the Empire is a legitimate threat. Like, so they, they disrupt the parade, and then they're, the, the, kind of the last half of the episode is them you know, crawling through the streets, trying to find a way out with the you know, spotlights and the Empire searching everywhere. And it finally feels like there is, the Empire is an actual legitimate threat, and there's a bit more of an oppressive tone that's been missing previously. One of the things that I really liked about this episode, uh, and just that you know, I, I love about ex- expanding the universe, and you see a little bit of it in Solo, where in both this and Solo, you hear the the more upbeat and uh, I guess uplifting version of the Imperial March playing, <laughs> yeah. where it's it's kind of used as this the official theme of the Empire, and they'll play it over like recruiting videos and Solo. And what I love about this one though is you kind of see how they're really trying to protect their image. You know, you, you don't see what what occupation under the Empire looks like, really. Like, even in A New Hope, it seems like the only reason the Empire would have any sort of presence on Tatooine was because of the droids being there. I don't, because I don't, I'm not sure I really got the impression that, you know, the Empire had as big of a hold on Mos, Le- Mos Eisley as they did prior to the droids landing. It's because no one wants to be on Tatooine. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, basically, they're running from the Empire because the Empire wants Sibo, and they escape, but the uh, Inquisitor places a tracking device on them. And I, I really like his TIE fighter. It has these two collapsible wings on the side. Um, so the next episode, Gathering Forces, uh, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Greg Wiseman, continues the same story. So we find out that Sibo knows what happened to Ezra's parents, and 
Ezra is just really angry and bitter about the fact that he did not save them. So this is a, a, an occurring theme throughout the show is, is, is Ezra trying to find out because I don't think he doesn't really know what happened to his parents. I think they disappeared when he was fairly young. And so we're getting like little bits and pieces that they might have been involved in the resi- in some kind of resistance against the Empire. Um, and, you know, Sibo apparently knows something about them. And he is ashamed for not having uh, raised Ezra. I'm not entirely sure what his relationship was, but it's kind of just, we're just kind of getting glimpses into the past. It almost feels, you know, like the responsibility for, for taking care of Ezra may have kind of fallen on him. Um, I'm not sure if that's explicitly mentioned, but it's just, it's kind of the feeling that I, that I got from it. Um, so they realized they have a tracker on them. So they decide to separate from the ghosts while in hyperspace. And there was this really cool thing where they separate in, they eject the phantom and like the, uses like this weird warbling rainbow effect as they kind of fall out and break out of the hyperspace. It's really cool visual. Yeah, I'd like to see something like that maybe happen in live action just because the way it's it's shot is really, really cool where it, it feels like it's kind of warping space around them and you've got all these these colors bending in and out. It's it's a neat visual. Mm-hmm. So then they go they go to the uh, the base where uh, with all the Frynox and Kane is still trying, basically leaves Ezra alone with him to try and get him to connect. And essentially what we learn is that in order to connect with another creature, you have to open yourself up, um, which, you know, Ezra being the street rat, you know, the, the survivor has never, will never allow himself to open up and, you know, to you know, to allow that kind of vulnerability with another creature. So essentially he has to, as he, he has to allow himself to face his dark, you know, his dark demons, you know, it's, it's, it's normal stuff, but it is nice. You know, he, he kind of like is, has to conquer his trauma as he's trying to control these creatures. And and with the force, it felt like a cool callback to, you know, Obi-Wan controlling the creatures in the, the Ryloth episode in the Clone Wars. I think those are the only two instances we really ever see them controlling animals through the force. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so then the Inquisitor tracks them there, and there's this really cool scene as as the um, as the clone troopers walking with flashlights, and they kind of fl- flash onto Kanan and Ezra. They're both kind of sitting there kneeling in their Jedi meditation, and behind them is a whole line of the Phrynox, and they sick them on the, uh, the stormtroopers. It's a really fun sequence. So again, they, they fight, and they're just Kanan is simply not a match for the Inquisitor and Ezra goes dark in a really cool sequence that he calls up this giant like the mother of all Phrynox to sick on the Inquisitor um, but it was just really crazy like, see, like seeing him, him going to the dark side you know, out of the out of anger um, due to uh, the Inquisitor taunting him yeah it's super cool imagery and it almost reminds me of some like Lost Jedi would you can only imagine Luke being like, you know, you went right to the dark place real quick. And we see the the dark, at least for a beginner, is far more powerful because it's it's fully based in emotion. Yeah. Yeah. So they stick the giant monster on him, and then they escape. And Sabine gives him a picture of his parents, which is cute. What? So I forget. What's the ultimate fate of of Sibo in this episode? They give him to the rebellion, I think, to get more information out of him. Okay. So the next episode is the Path of the Jedi. This one's directed by Dave Filoni and written by Charles Murray. And we have Kanan taking Ezra to the Jedi Temple on Lothal. Uh, and so 
we open up and Ezra's late for training and Ken is just very irritated with Ezra because he has no discipline and he just he's pretty much at his wits and he just doesn't know what to do with the Padawan. You know, he, he was still a Padawan himself. He simply has no experience in this. And so he um he goes and takes him to the temple. And this is one really this is a really cool thing where he uh he has Ezra meditate to try and locate the temple on the fall. He has Ezra call out directions as they're flying and then they land and he's like, all right, turn autopilot off. <laughs> and then that's really cool. They have to open the temple together. It's like this giant screw. It's one. It's in, inside one of those giant rock cones, but they have to open together. This is kind of just like screws itself out of the ground to open the door. And it's kind of very much similar to Ilum where they had to, all the Padawans had to work together to open the temple. Yeah. This episode reminded me a lot of that one. This is actually one of my favorite episodes from season one. Um, uh, Maybe because we don't have any, you know, the the goofball empirical stuff going on. But uh, this, to me, this one felt more in line with like a Clone Wars episode than any other yeah. at this point. It's very similar to to, to uh, the Gathering because it's the Padawan going into an unknown place to 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 forge some kind of connection with the Force, and the, you know, the Master stays behind and whatnot. <laughs> I don't know if it's real. Like there's these these two bummified Jedi and. And uh, Kaden says, "Oh, they're they're masters whose padawans never returned. I, I, they're probably fake. It's just something they tell to scare, to scare the youngsters." I don't know. I I kind of took him at his word for it. That seems like <laughs> honestly, that seems like the kind of dogmatic things that a, that a Jedi would do. Like, no, you you stay there for your padawan. But that that means the padawans also died, and we know from Ilum that the ice was never actually forming. Like. The, the the whole episode is this threat of you if the ice freezes you will die on the other side but it was actually just a thin wall of ice yeah but I, I don't know there's almost something more ancient like ancient feeling about this one that maybe you know you know ancient Jedi really really did this and they you know they were willing to put their Padawans through a bit more than than maybe we are now Maybe. I mean, this this place uh, took Ezra to some dark places. Yeah. So, Caden uh, says it says it you know, tells me to look for everything and nothing. He's like, well, that doesn't help. He's like, I know, but that's what my master told me. And I really like the cut where you know he goes in, and then he he, he can't find the way to go. But then Caden's like, whatever. I I I'm just gonna come. He comes and joins. Him. Like, yeah, I know I said I wouldn't, but whatever. I'm I'm tired of waiting. And they go in, and he's attacked by the Inquisitor. And they're attacked by the Inquisitor, and then Caden gets killed, and then. <laughs> Ezra falls off the ship and onto the ghost and the crew is kind of talking about him how he's just a useless kid and they kind of they're just using him for whatever information he has or something and then a really dark scene where the Inquisitor comes in and kills them like off screen in shadow it's just really really like obviously they're staying within the parameters of the kids of a you know Disney XD kids show but they're really getting dark I mean the camera you know turning around and you know, just little things like seeing Sabine's legs kind of, you know, puking it like lying lifeless from behind the the sitting area, and the, yeah, j- just those screams and the flashes of red. And yeah, I, I really like how trippy this part of the episode gets. Like, I think what makes it so effective, like initially with that with that first cut you were referring to, is you know we had just gotten back from you know Kanan putting it on autopilot and and we already know he's kind of teaching on the fly and kind of going by his own rules and you know at first I was like oh that's classic Kanan when he comes in and is like I know I said that but we're pressed for time so I'm doing things my way I'm like yeah that's something Kanan would do right that, that's totally within yeah. character and so like 
you know, I, I've forgotten this point because um, it had been so long since I'd seen this. Obviously, I know he doesn't die here, but, but when he, I, I completely forgot that this is all like this is where the illusions of the rest of the episode begin. Yeah, same here. Um, and so what finally happens is Ezra stops running and lets go of his fear of death. And that's what defeats the Inquisitor because the Inquisitor has been pursuing him for like quite a while. And I guess you know, that's the lesson. You know, He has to uh, overcome what, his fear of death. And then we get Pixie Dust Yoda, which is basically the same the same thing that uh that uh the same form Qui Gon took on Dagobah when he first spoke to Obi Wan, this kind of sparkly pixie dust, whatever. Then Yoda comes and appears to Kanan and he's talking to him. Uh and this one they actually used Frank Oz instead of Tim uh, Tom Kane, and I kinda almost wish it was Tom Kane <sighs> again. Cause I I spent so long uh with with Tom Kane as animated Yoda, and he, he uh, uh, Frank Oz's voice is a bit more gravel, and he doesn't, he's not as just kind of sweet and uh, impish as Tom Kane is. And I kind of miss that. Man, I, I, I love Tom Kane from the Clone Wars, but uh, there, I don't know, there's just something about the way Oz voices the character that, like, yeah, I'll. I'll I'll always happily take Frank Oz voicing the character when I can. Uh, this, you know, I think he possesses just, there's something about, I think he really conveys aged wisdom really, really well. Like, essentially in this episode, he his voice carries some sort of sense, and maybe it is just kind of me projecting my knowledge that, that this is Frank Oz, but it just feels to carry some sort of sense of authority here and, and because of the legacy Tom Kane ha- or um, the legacy that Frank Oz has with the character, you know, maybe you know, kind of in a meta way, it adds a sense of weight and authority to this scene where it's like, okay, we, you know, this is Disney kind of, you know, really putting their official stamp on the show by going back and getting, you know, we open the series now with with James Earl Jones as Vader, and now we've got Frank Oz, you know, returning to voice him, and yeah. And then and he appears to Ezra and he asks the same question: Why must you become Jedi? And first Ezra kind of goes that he wants strength for vengeance. And they talk a bit more. And it's basically not until Ezra comes to the place where he he wants he says he desires the strength to protect others. That's when Yoda comes and gives him a Kyber crystal. It almost feel you you kind of feel that Empire Strikes Back Yoda, and maybe that's why I like Frank Oz so much. Here's you know, this is only five years, well, I guess eight years really prior to Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, you, I, can, I can only speculate considering I don't really know how the season ends. But one of the things I found interesting was how, you know, he's very, you know, he doesn't desire to really train Luke initially at all. And he's thinking of every excuse he can, but here, you know, he's, he's very much encouraging Ezra on the path of a Jedi and encouraging Ken, you know, like, yeah, you were a Padawan, but you must be honest with your answer. Are you going to train this kid? Because, you know, it seems to be the path before you. And it makes me wonder if, uh, if something happens, that kind of changes just his entire outlook on, on training the next generation of Jedi. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because the burden wasn't particularly like really on him in this case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then we flash forward, and Ezra has built his lightsaber, which kind of looks like an industrial stapler. <laughs> so he makes his lightsaber, and that's it. Uh, next episode is Idiot's Array, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Kevin Hops. 
In this one, the ghost crew finds themselves caught up in a scheme with uh, one Lando Calrissian, who is played by Billy Dee Williams, and he's every bit as smooth and wonderful as ever. That What's really amazing is he, I mean, it sounds just like we're back with, with Lando from Empire Strikes Back. You know, maybe he's a bit slower in his delivery, but it, just in terms of his intonation and his vocal tone and pitch and everything, it, it, sounds, it sounds like the Lando I knew. Mm-hmm. Zab loses a game of Sabacc with... Uh, <laughs> Lando and now having seen Solo we know Lando cheated <laughs> and that's so great I love you know I'm sure so much of this I just have Pablo Hidalgo to thank but you know where we have Zebby like he cheated I know he cheated and it's like yes yes he cheated and, and it's really <laughs> funny to think that the last time we saw him he was you know just on this random planet playing Sabacc and we go years without seeing him and we just find him on another random planet playing Sabacc and yeah, it's I really really like the character and the continuity they have with him. Yeah, it's uh, they they uh, I think he bet Chopper, and so to get Chopper back, they have to do a job for uh, Lando. And <laughs> he's like, someone calls him so he's like a smuggler. I'm more of an intergalactic entrepreneur. That means businessman. <laughs> I was, was that the, I think it was his name. Like I know what an entrepreneur is, and he's still trying to charm the ladies. And Sabine falls for it, but Hera just doesn't go for any of it I, I like that moment where she calls him out she's like you know you're trying to use us but if you want us to be able to work for you we've got to you've got to make sure that my crew will be in sync and she's she's kind of being like your game not only doesn't fool me but it's not even going to work here and she kind of quickly mm. takes charge well, they, they go and meet this uh this i guess space crime lord or something named asmorgon who's basically just a giant orange pig and he's really gross and voiced by james wong uh and I like that as they're going in, uh, uh, Lando tells Hera kind of off the bat, you know, and this ship has escape pods. And like, what was that? Okay. And then he re- then he reveals that he's actually selling Hera to Asmorgon for the uh, for the puffer pigs. And Hera, Hera goes. I like that Hera. She goes along with it because she knows she can escape. She's obviously very annoyed at Lando. Yeah. And just a fun fact, as Morgan is actually based on early concept art for Jabba the Hutt. I can believe that. Yeah, and then uh, back to remind us that this is a kid's show. Lando's cargo is a puffer pig, and there's all kinds of ridiculous antics, and it almost kills them, and then it turns off the signature masker because it keeps blowing up and shoot, throwing people around. And, and like uh, a five-year-old, I'm laughing at it. <laughs> okay, good for you. Uh, then they land, and it turns out, oh, no, it's an ambush because Morgan found them, and there's a fight, and it's revealed that uh, Ezra's lightsaber is also a blaster, and Kay's like, hey, mine doesn't do that, <laughs> which is just a, such a cool uh, concept. Um, it, It's like riding the line of just getting kind of ridiculous, but I love it. Yeah. You know, when I went to Disney uh, most recently, they've got this little Star Wars exi- like uh, exhibition area, and they've got this display case of all these different lightsaber hilts from across the series. And they've actually got Ahsoka's two saber hilts, and, and they've got Ezra's hilt as well. And, and I can confirm they look cool in live action and up close. So they finally go, <laughs> I love how uh, Hera just goes and slugs up uh, Lando in the gut for what he did to them. And then he says, oh, well, I can't pay you. And then it turns out um, Chopper stole a carton of fuel while, during the fight. And then after they leave, Lando says to the pig, oh, of course I knew they took the fuel. That's why I didn't pay him. <laughs> and like only Billy D. Williams could get away, uh, you know, expositing to a pig. He, like I said, you know, there's, there really isn't a whole lot to say about this episode, but 
it was a lot of fun hearing Billy D again. And uh, and honestly, I I thought just the image of a uh, of Chopper trying to push the fuel up and then kind of giving himself a big running start and just barely itching it up the little ramp was pretty funny. Our next one is a, Vi- a vision of hope. This one's directed by Stephen G. Lee and written by Henry Gilroy. And this one, the uh, crew ghost crew infiltrates the capital city to rescue a uh, dissident senator Gal Travis or Gal Travis. And we have Ezra training to block lasers. Then he, while he's um, basically he's he's able to block, but he can't deflect them into the helmets. Like can instead of a helmet to le- to learn how to deflect uh, into a direction, he can't do it. And then he kind of goes into a trance and gets these premonitions uh, about Gal Travis. Gal, I keep saying Gal, Gal Travis. I think it's Travis. Travis, Travis, whatever. <laughs> Uh, whatever, um, and it was pretty cool. Like we've seen these kind of premonitions before uh, for, with Ahsoka in the Assassin episode. But then he really comes out of it, and he realizes while he was he was in tune with the Force, he deflected every laser into the target. Uh, Gal Travis was introduced earlier in the season. He's basically a senate Republic senator who has like this uh, this radio program that is broadcasting anti Imperial propaganda. I guess kind of you know similar to like the the BBC radio broadcasts uh, during the German occupation of uh, Europe. So yeah, he has a premonition that tells him that, tells him that uh, Gal Travis knew his parents and then on the radio broadcast we hear that uh, he's coming to Lothal and then they then they meet with, back with Azir Leonis from uh, Breaking Ranks and he tells him that there's actually a plot to uh, capture the senator. And so they go in, they go in to meet him, but it's a trap. And I love when, uh, when, uh, K- K- uh Callus walks out, he's like, uh, he, t- he says, you know, Kanan, Padawan Jabba. Cause uh, <laughs> earlier on in the way back in the first episode, uh, Ezra told him, told K- uh, Callus that he was, his name was Jabba that. Um, but then Zeb and Sabine break them out and they're on the run and the Senator is pretty much useless and he's kind of prying to find out more information about them. And as it turns out, no, he's a traitor. But I love that hair I knew all along. Like basically, as soon as he started asking information about them, and was and was delaying them, she realized she handed him an empty blaster. You know, classic trick. But uh, yeah, I love that she was on top of it. And you know, rewatching the episode, you you can almost spot the moment where she starts to have her suspicions. I do like that. You know, pairing this with the the the, the rise of the old masters, realizing like every every glimpse of hope is actually just another imperial scheme to capture them um but again same with that episode it does they like the, the show doesn't have the guts to end an episode in the like in a dark place like as soon as it ends like oh they're all happy back to normal again despite the fact that this 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 beacon of hope turns out to be nothing more than an imperial plant you'd think that would hurt them a bit more yeah it's a good show yeah well i think Hera, you know kind of by necessity has to find ways to spin it and increase hope and morale. And I think they ended a bit darker later on whenever you like epic an episode ends with Kanan actually captured. And, uh, Wait, this episode is Kanan captured? This no, not, not the end of this episode, but I, I think later on in the season, they are able mm. to, to kind of end in a not so optimistic tone. Yeah. Uh, next episode is call to action. This one directed by Stuart Lee and written by Greg Wiseman and Simon Kinberg. Uh, and this one we have uh, Grand Moff Tarkin arriving on Lothal to take down the ghost crew. 
And there's a really cool shot in the opening of this with the uh, the Imperial cruiser coming in. And it's pretty much a direct mirror of the opening of uh, Return of the Jedi. We have the Imperial March and the the, the um the shuttle comes in. You have all the troopers lined up, but it's it's so short. Like like the Clone Wars would have you know lingered on it and given us time to take it in. But this one's like it's like less than forty seconds from the the uh, the cruiser coming on screen. He's already walking down the plank. It's like yeah, bits of kids show they have to keep everything moving at a fast clip. And I, re- I really wish they they allow more time to just relish in those really cool visuals. I mean, I thought it looked cool. Um, and I, I don't know, like, it, it wasn't, like, as cool as it was, you know, and I, I noticed, like, very much the the parallel with Return of the Jedi. I think if they lingered too much, you know, you're kind of expecting Vader to walk out, and we're not ready. Tarkin's awesome, but he's not getting a Vader or Emperor reveal. <laughs> yeah, so t- Tarkin's here, and Tarkin's awesome. He's uh, voiced again by Steven Stanton, who's just does a fantastic job. And I love his visual design. Like I'm not over the moon about a lot of the designs, but this one, this one looks like a very, a very good in between. Uh, like we had, like actually, I I like his design here even better than his one in the Clone Wars. I think it it looks a bit more like the character. Yeah, he very much feels just like an animated version of of Peter Cushing, and whereas I think the Clone Wars maybe it's just because of the very angular design, but it felt more stylized than and you know accentuating things almost to an ex- too much of an extreme but here he you know without a word of dialogue you see him and you know exactly who he is mm-hmm. at the same time Ezra, Kanan, and Sabine are being chased by Abbott and Costello and this episode looked a bit better than the others to me I think I think a lot of it is the fact that it was shot almost entirely at night and a lot of the, a lot of the show has been like in bright daylight and w- w- whenever this the uh, these guys have nighttime they they can put a lot more into making it look prettier because you don't have to put as much detail in it so the the uh, Abbott and Castillo again fail to uh, capture them and Tarkin has the Inquisitor behead them which is it's again very censored but it's still kind of shocking and I, I love his demeanor in that entire scene where uh, he's kind of pro- like in t- not interrogating him just asking you know about their experience with the rebels and the ghost and uh one of them is you know like he's a Jedi and he lives up to their reputation and just dismissing him so quickly like I doubt that very much but what I am interested like he's just he could not care less about them and he's just the Jedi are ridiculous and they're gone these guys are incompetent can't get the job done it's like he's instantly stepping into the same Tarkin that we know before so yeah so the um the ghost crew is trying to send out uh, as they say, a beacon of hope. Uh, they, they want to take a Imperial broadcast tower and send out a message, I think a message from Ezra, kind of calling the, you know, giving hope to the people and um, calling resistance against the Empire. And so they go, but they go, but it's actually a trap and they go in and Caden holds the door while they try to get the message out, which is just, you know, I always love last Jedi Last Stands. And so he fights with the, with the Inquisitor. I like how the Inquisitor fights. In this battle, he fights like a fencer. Like, he has this very proper poise and, you know, all the movements in his arm. It's just fun to see kind of different fighting styles. And Kanan is, again, you know, he could fight. And I think he even mentions that he's been practicing. But he's simply no match for him. And the the way he holds himself in a battle very much fits in with the voice of Jason Isaacs as well. Yeah. 
So they go in and uh, they, they get the message out, but they have to escape from the top and Kanan is captured. And Moff Tarkin, instead of, you know, the message, they, they've they've hijacked the entire signal. So instead of you know, taking the time to, to uh, decode it, he just blows up the entire tower to turn the message off. And, I, you know, I love his line where he's like, the difference between us is... I understand the cost of winning a war. You know, we're not even going to try to fight you over this. We're just going to blow it up and move on because we can. And I love yeah, the idea which of is like, the exact same thing he does in Rogue One. Yeah, uh, and I love just the idea of like the necessity the Empire has to suppress the truth, where you know, like they can occupy all of these outer rim colonies and oppress people, like the people of Lothal, and you know, propaganda is instrumental to you know to uh, maintain any sort of order. Until, of course, you can create something like the Death Star and just hold a big space station over a planet and have them fall in line. So next episode is Rebel Resolve. is directed by Justin Ridge and written by Charles Murray and Henry Gilroy. And so this one we have... Hera has is basically realizing... She knows that Kanan is gone. And she's pretty much ordering the rest of the crew to not try and save him. So they they, 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 they uh, hijack a walker to try and get some information, but it's not connected to the whatever Imperial network because they destroy the tower. And then we go back to Hera's talking to Fulcrum, and she and Fulcrum's basically telling them to leave Kanan, and she's kind of chewing them out for even sending the signal out in the first place. Like, she's telling the, the rebellion is way too young, and you're know, sending out that sending out that signal, trying to call people to action, jeopardizes the entire very subtle network they're trying to build and it draws attention to an open rebellion which they simply can't afford right now you know it's definitely a, a much much more thoughtful than the show's been up till now and it's also just you know knowing knowing who fulcrum is in retrospect it's it's in a lot of ways very different from from the the character that we last saw where who is you know, very much, you know, sometimes similar to, to Anakin where it's like, I am going to save that person if I can. Whereas now it is, you know, like, listen, it hurts, but we can't do that. And we really shouldn't even have done this in the first place. She's far more thoughtful and not that she mm-hmm. wasn't in the Clone Wars, but here it's, it is very much, you know, we have, we have to think about the bigger picture. Yeah. And so then, uh, as, as Rose and Chopper, and Zeb all basically rebel against um, Hera and kind of, uh, and uh, you know, kind of do this coordinated effort to escape. And they go to Visago and they reveal um, reveal to uh, him that Ezra was actually a Jedi. He says, "You know, if you tell us, give us some information, you'll have a Jedi owing you a favor." And he tells them that the Empire is using uh, droids to carry data since they blew up the tower. They have to use droids to carry data back, you know, back between the ships and the planet, which is you know a cool little logistical thing. Like they're actually having the consequences of that in the show. And so they hatch up a plot to steal a droid and replace it with Chopper. Although, I why did they say why did they, I don't know why they send Chopper? Like they steal a droid. Why do they send Chopper along? I'm I'm almost one hundred percent positive that's addressed of why he has to go. I think there's a bit of dialogue about it. I just don't remember. And I was really hoping Chopper would die on this mission. Oh. Because I haven't talked about Chopper. I do not like Chopper. I love Chopper. He's, he's just a jerk. He's hilarious. And, like he, and he does the, like he does the, every time he does something good, he's this exact same motion where he spins his head around like, 
and like flexes his stupid little arms. He does that like three or four times every episode. It's always the same. He's the same one note douchebag. See, oh, man, I just don't agree with that at all. I think they do a lot more with them than just that. Like the the moment in the Gal Travis one where <laughs> they the the claw or the stormtroopers find him and and they they weld the door shut and as they walk away he kind of gives them like this like sarcastic salute and then instantly as soon as they can't see him he pulls out this little buzz saw and starts hacking at the, the he has moments and, but overall he's just irritating to me no i think he's hilarious oh, I love him. yeah so for some reason they send chopper along and now they have to um go back and rescue him and they rescue him and and they well during this time while they've been uh, you know getting information off the uh off of the uh of the imperial data droid they've been making friends with it and at the end when they try they're like hey we should bring him onto the crew and nope chopper throws him out the hatch i hate chopper they should have gotten a new droid that is one of the funniest moment probably the funniest moment to me in like either series because it's just they kind of it's it's where they kind of subvert exactly what you think is happening with this kid's show where where Sabine and Zeb kind of share this now and they're like, all right, and you can see her hit the button and it's closing and it's you're almost ready for the music to play. <laughs> it's just so quick when he falls out and he gives him his little wave with the arms. and uh, Chapter's a murderer and he's just I, a horrible person. I laughed out loud. I thought it was hilarious. Whatever. I hate it. <laughs> they find out uh, that they're... Ki- they find out the information that they're taking Kane into Mustafar. And it's cool at kind of filling in the gaps and seeing how Vader hunted them down, you know, with Kane and having told Hera, you know, it's where Jedi go to die. And then what, what's cool, we, we never really talked about the, the other end of this episode with Kane and being interrogated by the Inquisitor. And you see that little probe jo- uh, droid that uh, Darth Vader brought in and I think a new hope when he was going to interrogate Leia. Yeah. And uh, and one thing I noticed, it seemed like the Inquisitor was uh, was pulling an old Kylo Ren with Rey where he was, you know, you've got him or even the visuals here reminded me more of, of when he's interrogating Poe in The Force Awakens when he's just kind of probing his mind, kind of putting his hand out in front of his head. Um, felt very reminiscent of what we see there. Yeah, like there's actual torture in this, which I was glad to see. There's actual darkness. And I love that he's taunting Kanan uh, with his master Depa Balaba's death and you know accusing him of cowardice do you remember your master's last words he's like she said run and you know you see Kanan is kind of haunted by the fact that he he, he ran while the Jedi died and uh, the yeah, Inquisitor is kind of just throwing all that in his face so go, going back to the ghost crew uh, they, they they need to get a TIE fighter to uh to rest to infiltrate the base and as it turns out they didn't destroy the uh, the tie that Ezra and Zeb stole which is uh, I, kind of a fun callback I, I like that where they were told to destroy it, but they actually just hit it and Sabine's been painting it so it's this bright yellow flowery <laughs> tie fighter and there's this weird moment where it's, it's all of a sudden like up till now Hera has been the one who's been cautious about you know, risking the rest of the crew to save Kanan. And there's like a, a moment where everyone else in the crew is like, I don't know, it's, it's too dangerous. And Hera's convincing them to do it. There's like this weird turnabout where like all the characters were like the opposite opposite of what they were previously. Just a weird scene. Um, so they, so they, they send in the, the flowery TIE fighter that's full of some kind of pulse thing that shuts down the entire, the, uh, entire prison ship. And it also knocks out the stormtroopers, which 
seems a bit easy. Why don't they use that more often? Maybe it's expensive. I don't know. <laughs> so they go in and infiltrate the ship, and Ezra rescues Kanan. And while they're while they're while it's happening, and they're basically getting slowly uh, more and more overwhelmed, and then Chopper flies off to contact Fulcrum. And then we get a basically probably the best one of the best scenes in the entire show, but definitely the best scene this season where. Uh, Ezra and Kanan again face off the Inquisitor and they're kind of on this platform over this some kind of energy generator very very reminiscent of uh, the Duel of the Fates and you even hear a little bit of a of Duel of the Fates worked into the music there and it's really cool seeing um, Ezra and Kanan tag team fighting uh, the Inquisitor and the, the way the Inquisitor fights here is super cool where he kind of leaps from one to the other and every time he's in the air he kind of he just holds the the circular hilt out and it spins and then once he brings it down to strike it stops and then he'll jump back at the other and hold it out and it'll spin and then he'll strike it's it's a really cool way he fights between the two just kind of jumps from one to the other spinning it around yeah and the thing is battles is, is as good as anything that was in the clone wars um so eventually the the uh, the inquisitor throws Ezra off the bridge and Kanan thinks he's dead and's like that was a mistake you know, why? Because you have no one left to die for you. No, because now I have nothing left to fear. And he gets Ezra's lightsaber and he goes at him. And it's really cool because he has, he's alternating between fighting and then he'll start shooting with Ezra's lightsaber. Then he'll go back and do do a few more blows and start shooting again. It's just really like, so you, like we've never seen that before. Um, so he's so so crazy and different, but so cool. Yeah, and I, I love the moment when he kind of. He works the Inquisitor into the, the circular control panel station and and the Inquisitor is kind of standing in the middle and he's swinging around and there's a super cool moment where Cannon kind of jumps and he just, he literally jumps clean over um, yeah. the Inquisitor's horizontal strike and he brings his lightsaber down on him. It's it's really cool choreography and that's what's so cool. It's like the Clone Wars. It's it's not just mindless bashing. It's actual choreography. Uh, but so yeah, he, he eventually forces the Inquisitor back and then knocks him off the edge and there's a really interesting line. Like, uh, like he's standing over the Inquisitor. He's hanging. He's like, you know, you have no idea what you unleash here today. There's something's far more frightening than death. What was he, he was referring to? As far as being unleashed, I guess Vader. I think it is Vader, especially considering where season two begins. It's it almost feels like you've caused so much attention that you you think you've been occupied right now, but you you don't know what true empirical. Op, uh, occupation looks like at this mm, point. Okay, and it's cool. He just lets he, he he has that line, then he lets go and falls into the flames. Very cool way for him to go out. He's a very he's a very he's a very good villain, but uh, we get better later on. But I think yeah, he he gets a very worthy end. Yeah, it's really cool. And we realize Ezra was actually he just fallen onto a platform and he's got his his sexy scars on his face now. <laughs> and uh, they take the Inquisitor's tie and they and they're. they're trying to escape but they're pretty much trapped because there were a bunch of other several other uh imperial ships in the in the uh convoy and then the fledgling rebellion comes because uh chopper contacted i guess okay chopper redeems himself a little bit he's okay now i guess because he contacted uh basically the tiny current rebellion fleet which is um just i think simply just three alderaan corvettes if i'm not mistaken that's what it looks like it just looks like the blockade runners yeah, it's really cool just see, seeing the uh, the ghost and the three Corvettes come out of hyperspace to engage the uh, the Empire. <laughs> and like, Hera's like, oh, it's the the other cell. And, and um, it's, it's, like, it's one of the other cells. And Zeb's like, we're a cell? Did you know we're a cell? <laughs> and then, you know, they all escape. And then we realize 
Fulcrum is Ahsoka, which I th- I, I I didn't even know. I, I knew Ahsoka was going to show up at some point in the show, but seeing her come down, it was just it's oh gosh, it's so cool. She, she's my she's my favorite character from Clone from the, the Clone Wars, and you know having her come back and in such a a natural role for who she was. And you know, she's an older, wiser version of the character she was in uh, the Clone Wars. Very different character design. I, I'm not entirely sold on her character design, but you know, Ashley Eckstein voices her, so I love it. Yeah, there are moments like these that really show. I think we talked about it on the um, the Clone Wars Legacy one, where you know, just my reaction to the the trailer is proof that I like I hold these up there with the movies, and and I think my reaction to this part is is just further proof of that because. This is this is the reveal of a legacy character for me. You know, like this, I, I'm going to absolutely love seeing Billy D come back in episode nine now that it's confirmed. But like, this is on that level for me. And and again, you know, as soon as you hear that it's Ashley Eckstein, it's like okay, we got no reservations. I am excited. Like they brought Ahsoka back, voice and all. And such a cool moment. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Then the, ep- the episode ends with Vader arriving on Lothal, uh, which. They do a great job making him as just as intimidating as he ever was in um in the original trilogy. Like, you know, they 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 don't do the Empire as well, but with these characters like this, they they know how to make them intimidating. Thankfully, um, so yeah, the, like the, it it feels a lot more awkward trying to go through like with with the Clone Wars episodes, we could always latch on to some kind of theme or character arc. And this show doesn't really have those, unfortunately. Um, I I really enjoy this season, but I I have fun with watching. But it just doesn't have the staying power that the Clone Wars had. It doesn't like. There's not. You don't have the arcs and like the deep character arcs of the episodes, and you, there's really not the same thematic depth. Like each like each Clone Wars arc would have. I mean, like each Clone Wars episode or arc would have, you know, a character arc, and then often some kind of thematic idea or philosophical concept they're wrestling with, and this just doesn't. It occasionally has something, but there's not nearly as much medium, you know, character material to discuss here. Yeah, I mean, I know. I think one of the things that I do like about this is that, and it's it's not even like this. To, this is better than this, and the, doing this way is better than that. Like. They're very different, like we talk, one is episodic and one is serialized. And I think one of the things that I do like about it being serialized is I, I, by being able to focus on these characters, I think you're able to explore stuff with them over longer periods of time. And, you know, I don't think even by the end of this series, I'll ever think, you know, they do they do with Ezra what they did with Ahsoka. But I, I do like, you know, watching just a very focused growth over the entire series. And I think Ezra really is a good character by the end of this series. And, and I like the focus on, on he and Kanan beforehand, you know, usually in a master Padawan relationship, it's the Padawan who's trying to learn to grow. And, and I, I think they're in a really cool space that we've never really seen in any other Star Wars show with, with Kanan growing just as much as Ezra is throughout and kind of like they're they're tag teaming this whole learning experience together, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's there's definitely not it. De- it doesn't go as deep as as uh, the Clone Wars does, but for the most part, I I still really really enjoy it. And I I think they use their their serialized aspect in in really cool ways. You know, stuff like the Tie Fighter and the 
callbacks and stuff like that. I, I think it's really fun. Yeah, so I guess to be fair, this, whereas the Clone Wars was separated into single episodes and arcs, it would have to fit its character arcs and themes into that to that story then move on to a new one. Whereas here, the themes and character arcs are given in much smaller doses and spread out over the entire season. Which still means you're basically getting the character depth and thematic depth that you would get across 14 episodes that you would have gotten in a three-episode arc of The Clone Wars. But it, it, it's, it is there. Like, you're seeing Ezra grow up over the course of the season, you know, Kanan and Hera and their, their relationship and, you know, slowly working themselves into a, a larger cause, you know, going from being that, you know, that, those lone Firefly crew to something and moving into something bigger. It's and, there. And, I mean, again, this is, you know, I do prefer, although I don't... I'm not sure. I think this might be a better season one than season one of the Clone Wars. More con- more consistent, that's for sure. I mean, th- I don't. Well, I don't know. I think I the the path of the Jedi and the finale. I think are both really really strong episodes, and I do think stand up to the best of season one. Uh, but I, I do think one strength by being serialized over episodic is is like you said, you know. You've got to contain this idea to this arc. And, and I think for the most part, the Clone Wars did do a good job of incorporating everything learned in that arc into everything going forward. But sometimes, you know, when you had something as huge as Umbara, we get a like a, a passing and like a, just a, we mentioned General Krell once, but that's really all we ever hear from that. So sometimes not, not only is, is the growth having to be contained within that arc, but really just everything we learn about it is kind of contained within the arc and yeah but we do, there's nothing here that destroys your soul no but again i just again, yeah, yeah, again it's, a, yeah, it's an unfair comparison however it's so hard not to when you see ahsoka yeah, because they are take bringing back so many of the same elements it's, it's hard not to compare and i don't think they're i don't think the show wants to crush your soul either i think again they're very much i want my soul crushed <laughs> Yes, but my favorite is a new hope. Well, our favorite is a new hope. I, I, they're, okay. they're really yes. trying to be fun and good point. Original trilogy adventure serial Buck Rogers style adventure of the week. And it uh, it's a kid show, and it's a it's a good kid show. It's not a stupid, mind numbing, insulting kid show. It has good characters, you know, solid action, decent stories. It has some more mature themes and ideas, like. As far as you know, Disney XD kids shows go, it's a it's a really good one. But I guess we're we're spoiled and used to a fully adult show with the exact same characters and style. But how much depth is there really in A New Hope? I keep going back to A New Hope, whatever. <laughs> I fair enough, but there's nothing in here as good as A New Hope. That's uh, true enough. But I don't know. I every now and then this show really does get me like get, just gets my blood pumping like the the initial reveal of the saber and I, I really love the entirety of the path of the jedi and and the last duel in in the finale i think the entire finale is really strong and i don't know i'm i'm, I'm okay with this show being really fun and adventurous and sometimes silly with you know really epic moments sprinkled throughout i, I think it it lines itself up really nicely with where it's trying to head yeah, it, it, it's, it's a solid show. I, I always enjoy watching it, and I, I'll definitely watch it again over my lifetime. 
but it's not Clone Wars. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so as far as reception, it's kind of hard to tell. Just looking at the ratings, uh, it seemed to a- it was much smaller than the Clone Wars. It seemed to average roughly around a third of the Clone Wars viewers, and it got lower and lower as it went. Um, but critically, it was it's it's very good ratings. Um, the same with viewership, like the viewer reviews, like everyone seems to enjoy this show. Like the the, the consensus is not as good as Clone Wars. Though I don't really know anyone who hates it. Um, it just it seems to have like a fairly a mild mildly positive view. People like it, but it doesn't it doesn't have the passion that the Clone Wars fandom has. Um, I think a lot of that is just due to its lighter tone. Like it's 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 smaller and there's less stakes and there's less going on dramatically. Just about, like any given moment, there's just a lot less happening than you would have in the Clone Wars. And while I think people like it, it's just it doesn't quite scratch that itch in the same way. Um, we, we talked about that, but yeah. So it it it, it seems to get fairly positive reception, but the the it's a lot smaller overall. So it's kind of hard to judge. Yeah, you would not get the abs- just absurdly enthusiastic response to a Save the Rebels like reveal yeah. like we got for Clone Wars. So for season one. Enjoyable, but pretty insubstantial outside of some really good moments. All right, so uh, before we move out, uh, before we move out again, I'd like to ask you guys if you uh, enjoy the show to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there, they are at, at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? So, uh, I do a little bit of writing for a site called Article Asylum. You can find it at articleasylum.wordpress.com. It kind of started out as a DC website, but we talk about a lot of things beyond that now. I've got some Star Wars articles up there. I think, you know, it's kind of crazy that we haven't mentioned it yet considering how relevant it is, but the two of us are actually admins over on a Facebook group called Star Wars Fans Who Actually Like Star Wars. <laughs> uh, we're there with uh, several good friends kind of overseeing that page and you know, we're definitely inviting people to come and join. And you don't have to enjoy every single Star Wars film and just be head over heels with it. But I think what we're trying to create there is is a place where we have actual discussion, you know, hopefully avoiding um, terms like Mary Sue and... Uh, SJW and... SJ, yeah, stuff like that. Maybe try to be a bit bigger and above that. And, and if you dislike something, you know really bring, bring actual charges against it and be willing to discuss um, the movie on its own terms and things like that. And I've really enjoyed the the group so far, and I think there's been a lot of really cool discussion. Yes, we're just trying to get away from so much of the toxicity and just nastiness that has sadly enveloped. I, I don't think it's the majority of the fan, but just like a, a very loud minority and that seemed to basically take over every single star wars form so we were trying to create a place that is much more constructive and focused on liking star wars again um and then the last place would just be the typical letterbox you can follow me there at jl hamry it's j-l-h-a-m-r-i um i've been a little bit more um consistent with reviewing stuff um so you can find some reviews i just recently finished both the rocky franchise including creed as well as mission impossible uh, so yeah, you can find my thoughts on all of that there, as well as probably a bunch of stuff I'm just gonna watch in the next week. All right, and I am also on Letterbox. I'm there as Gabriel Green. I am also on Twitter as Gabe A Green. And next week we will be back with season two. It's a uh, 22 episodes this time. 
Um, and so, yeah, and actually I just watched the um, pilot episode and pretty much all my complaints about stakes are blown away. So I, I'm really looking forward to watching that through that that, uh, that season again. I think we'll have a lot. I think it does very much like the Clone Wars. It improves season by season, you know, getting more intelligent, more themes, more stakes, better visuals, just better overall. So I don't think we'll be complaining nearly as much next episode, uh, next season. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, I've only seen the, yeah, I think it's only the first 10 episodes that I've seen. Okay. So until next week, we will see you in season two. You were right. I was a coward. But now I know there's something stronger than fear. Far stronger. The Force. Let me show you how strong it is. <laughs>